This week, Chris Feistel talks about the most important informant the DEA had inside the Cali cartel. It's just a matter of time that, that they get killed or arrested, or, and, and so do I. So he's trying to find a way out. And while we were trying to find a way into the cartel, Salcedo was trying to find a way out of the cartel. We hook up and it makes that, that perfect storm. So he figures this is my way out through Rosenthal, through the uh, attorney in Miami. And maybe I can get some credit for it, too. And this is basically the only way I can get out. That's why he gets to the point where he's at now and he's meeting with us, hoping that with the resources of the U.S. government, we can capture Miguel, get rid of Pacho, rescue Palomari, who's been targeted to be assassinated by the cartel, and I can get to the States and live my life. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Well, hey, did you have any indication if it if, if, was he just figured this out because he watched some Tom Clancy movies or did they actually maybe get some training from some, you know, adversarial or hostile, you know, intelligence service? Well, and we, we know Cali and Medellin received training and uh, consulting from Cali was like a lot of the Brits when they, you know, they launched that operation to kill Pablo in the helicopters. They had British mercenaries. So, you know, I think Medellin received a lot of training from the Israelis. So, these guys had as much money as they could, you know, use, and it wasn't an object so that they they did get training and, you know, weaponry and everything else, communications equipment from a lot of these different places. So, yeah, I, I'm sure he was instructed by somebody on how to evade and detect surveillance. So uh, so the third day, we, we got a little smart. We huddled together, you know, Jerry, Dave, and Ruben, myself, and we said, look, it's going to be impossible to follow this guy for all the, the evasive techniques he's doing. So we started putting static surveillance where we lost him the day before. So we had people. So when he comes out of uh, his apartment complex, he would go on Avenida Quinta, which is like one of the main, main routes to get down into uh, Central Cali. So we had people set up on the route um, so we didn't have to follow him as much. So another day or two, we started taking him a little bit further. Each day, we were able to follow him a little bit further before we lost him. Same general direction each time? He would, but sometimes he would double back. He would, he, okay. like you said, he would cross this. So if the, if the road was running north-south, sometimes he would cross the road and head back south when he was going north initially. So he would change direction and, uh, like I said, change disguises. So... Um, but we continue to have that static surveillance. And, 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 and I, it, it brings to mind real quick is the um, in Zero Dark Thirty, when they're trying to follow bin Laden's courier to that house in Abbottabad, there's, I don't know if you've seen the movie, um, but they have several shots where they have static surveillance, just watching for the car to go by, and they would radio, okay, just passed. And then they'd have another static up the road. So we were kind of doing that very same thing in, in hopes that we would keep following him further and further each day. So uh, by the, about the fifth day, we were able to follow him to a park in downtown Cali. And we lost him at the park. So the final day, which was on June the 9th, 1995, 
we had everything statically covered and we had flooded that whole park with people. So sure enough, we're able to follow him. He goes there, he gets to the park, he gets out of the taxi cab and he starts walking down the street and he's, you know, he's looking over his shoulder, he's crossing the street, but we had so many people in that area. We basically didn't even have to move. We could just watch him go by. And at the end of the street are these stairs that go uphill maybe like a hundred feet or so. And you have a lot of people who exercise there on those steps. They run up and down the steps. He goes up the steps and we can't really follow him up the steps because he just turns around. And finally we're able to send somebody up afterwards and he's gone. We can't find him. We don't know where he went. All we know is that he went up the steps. He got to the top of the hill and we lost him. But at the top of the hill were like five connected townhouses. It was the only thing up there. Is in the Santa Monica area of Cali. So the assumption is he had to have gone into one of those townhouses. There's nowhere else he could have gone. So we basically call in the reinforcements. Uh, <clears throat> we get, <clears throat> excuse me, get with General Serrano. We get the, the bloke and the troops out there, and we hit all five townhouses simultaneously. And in one of the townhouses, sure enough, is Flacco. So we know that we suspect that is the townhouse where Gilberto is. So everybody pretty much conjugates into that, into that townhouse. Um, you know, Dave, Jerry, Ruben, myself, we're all there. Start tearing that place up. Ruben Prieto notices there's like a wall unit, almost like a bookcase, but with a TV on it. that's kind of sticking out a little bit, just doesn't look right. And he kind of pulls on it. And it's loose, and then we push it all the way open, and that reveals like a hidden room in the back. Gilberto Rodriguez is hiding in that hidden room. He's got a pistol in each hand, and he basically says, don't shoot, I'm a man of peace. And on June the 9th, 1995, Gilberto Rodriguez is arrested in that townhouse in Cali. Yeah, of course, all men of peace sit there with two guns in their freaking hands. Nothing says peace like a cult peacemaker in each hand. <laughs> but at least he <laughs> was right. smart enough not to use them or to yeah. do anything. So, Oh, he wanted to live more than he wanted to die. Uh, you know, and this reminds me, too, remember the, the FBI had that problem always with John Gotti. They knew he would go into a place, but they, could, they had it wired. They thought they could never get the conversations. It was always that secret room you know, that they would go to above. And it sounds like, was this the place he was going to each day then when he left? Yes, yes, because they were, at that point, Miguel was in another place where he was staying. He felt comfortable. Gilberto felt comfortable in this townhouse. He liked it. It was up on the side of a hill. It had a nice view. Uh, again, it was the end of, it was at the end of a, a dead end street. So there wasn't much traffic coming down there. It was only And those if anybody was up there, it would be easy to detect, which makes me surprised that you guys, for as many people, like you said, you had the place flooded, that your surveillance didn't get made. Well, the park where we were at was in the middle of the downtown center, which is business thriving, right? So there's all kind of people walking around those parks. The businesses are on each side. It's it's There's hundreds of people there. So it was very easy for us to blend in in that park and sit there because basically we didn't even have to move until he went up those steps. And then we had one of the, uh, the CMP vetted unit officers was a, was a female who was actually dressed in jogging gear. She was able to, you know, jog up and down the steps without being really noticed. Cause that's what a lot of people did. They used those steps as exercise 
and that's who we sent up to uh, to check the the top of that street out. So she was the one that was able to say, like, hey, I think he's in one of these townhouses. There's no other place he could have gone. Did Gilberto speak English? No, did not. And prior to the even that that the, the the final day, but do you think that he made you at any time? Did he know he was being surveilled? Um, even though the first time only lasted ten minutes, I, I don't think so because you know when he was on the bus, there's no way you can unless you sit in the back seat of the bus and look out. There's no way you can really tell if anybody's following you. Um, in the taxi, I don't think he made us at all. Or if he did, he wouldn't have went to the to the place when, where when it went there, yeah, where Hilberto was at. So. From start to finish, it took us six or seven days to put that whole surveillance together and then follow him to that place and ultimately arrest Gilberto. Bet he was surprised, huh? Oh, yeah. Was, I don't know who was more surprised, Gilberto, <laughs> when the coleta opened, or Ruben, who actually saw him. <laughs> Ruben was a piece of work, but he yeah. was a good man. Yeah, he good was. Good man. So th- that's obviously a huge... Um, a huge hit against Cali at this point. So where do you go from now? You've got, you've got, you've got him in custody. You've got Flacco, right? You've got at least some of the folks you're looking at. What, what happens next? So huge shot across the bow. Colombia is in a state of euphoria. They finally arrested one of the leaders of the Cali cartel. They finally got their one hit that they wanted. But what did they arrest him on? You said that all the indictments were out of the U.S. and that, you know, what was Colombia going to do with him? Well, at that point, that RICO indictment had just come out in the United States, right? So they were going to use evidence from that, different seizures and drug cases in the United States to... To make a case in Colombia. To build cases, yeah. Okay. Against them there. Um, You know, illicit enrichment money laundering, drug trial. It was pretty easy at that point to put something together. Um, So euphoria, the U.S. government's happy. Uh, Everybody's happy, right? So big celebration. Wow, it's back to work, right? So now we got to go after. How many are left standing now? Now there's three. So one down, three to go. So before we arrest Gilberto in May, I speak with Eddie Kazaroski and Lou Weiss, who are the case agents of Operation Cornerstone in Miami. And I, I send them uh, an email where I talk to them on the phone and I say, hey, look, all these people that you guys arrested in Cornerstone, go interview them, ask them all the same questions, find out what people visit Miguel the most, who are his most trusted people, where are his favorite places to stay, give me a rundown on everything. So Eddie Kazarowski goes and he debriefs all these different people. He sends me a list of, uh, of names, locations phone numbers, like a whole, like it's a 15, I still have it till this day. It's like a 15 page uh, yellow legal size tablet paper with, you know, names and everything. So the first name on that list, he says, all the people we talk to, they say, if you want to get to Miguel, follow his executive assistant. And our executive assistant with him now is this guy called Mateo, Jesus Zapata. So this is now the end of right about the end of June. So it's probably two weeks after we arrest Gilberto. Dave Mitchell and I were in Cali and we're following this guy, Mateo, around all day, every day for like two weeks. And he's not doing anything. He's driving around. He's going here. He's going up to the mountain. He's going over his girlfriend's house. He's not, he's not staying with Miguel. So like, man, this is something, something's not, something's wrong. So we, we start talking to some other sources, then we get a lot of intel that Chepi Santa Cruz, these two stories kind of coincide. Jose Santa Cruz is in Bogota. We're like, what? What is he doing in Bogota? Well, after Gilberto got arrested, 
you know, two other traffickers turned themselves in. Victor Patino turned himself in. Fenora Arizabaleta turned himself in. So this was the, like the, like you said, what was the thing that started this whole thing? It was Hilberto's arrest. So two weeks after Hilberto's arrest, two other traffickers surrendered. Chepe goes to Bogota. We get intel. The police have information, too, that, that Chepe's in Bogota. There was information that he likes to go to these nice restaurants, these nightclubs and everything. So everybody starts going out. The police send these units out to all these different restaurants, all these nightclubs, and they keep checking them. They keep checking them. They keep checking them. And then on July the 4th, 1995, while Dave and I are in Cali following this idiot Mateo around, Chepi Santa Cruz gets arrested at a steakhouse in Bogota called Carbon de Palo, my favorite place to eat. It has the best steak. Oh, yeah. we all been there. In the universe, right? So yep. Santa Cruz gets arrested. You know, some people said that he was there to turn himself in. Uh, we, we had intel that he was there. He was negotiating to turn himself in. He wanted no jail time. The government said, no, you're doing jail time. So they were like at an impasse. But, you know, Chuppy liked to eat well, drink, party. He was very jovial. And, man, the police went in there and they grabbed him and they arrested him. So July the 4th, Independence Day, the number three man in the Cali cartel, Jose Santa Cruz, goes down eating steak and drinking wine at Carbon de Palo. Hey, wouldn't that, who was the attorney general at the time? Was it still the grief or is he already gone? Oh, he was gone. Balavieso. Okay. Okay. Alfonso Balavieso. So two down, two to go now. Two down. So we're in Cali. We keep following Mateo around. After two weeks, like 14 days, I'm like, that's it. We're not. I tell Dave, this, this guy's not doing anything. If he's working with Miguel, he's not doing it during this time. Maybe he's on vacation. I don't know. But this guy's not doing anything. So I call Eddie Kazarowski back and I'm like, dude, this isn't working. What? What else we got on the list? He's like, okay, number two on the list, and I'm looking at it too as we're there. He's like, Guillermo Villa, his attorney, follow him. I'm like, I'm not following anybody. I've been sitting in the car for two weeks straight. <laughs> I'm not, you know, and then with my prostate hurts. And then I'm not following. So number three on the list was Jorge Salcedo. Jorge Salcedo was now the head of security for the Cali Cartel because in June, the guy we talked about before, the retired major, Mario Tabasto, he got arrested in Southern Cali on espionage charges. The military arrested him. He had all these like photographs and all these almost like terrorist pictures uh, of properties and stuff in Cali. So they arrested him. He was out of the picture. Salcedo gets promoted. He's now head of the entire, you know, Cali cartel security for Miguel. They say there's a chance that he might cooperate. I'm like, dude, if there's a chance that he's going to cooperate. Let's let's pursue that. I you know I want somebody on the ground that could give us real time intel. So Eddie Kazarowski says, okay, let me make a phone call. So he is able to with one of the based on that RICO indictment with one of the attorneys who was arrested who was friends with Salcedo was able to convince Salcedo to cooperate. Now Steve, you'll understand this. Morgan, which you can try to follow. So the attorney in Miami hey, is that a state is that a state and local joke? Or? <laughs> no, it's just it's, it's just like a. It's, you try and follow. This is very sophisticated. No. I'm about to make an arrest. No, it's it's a it's a legal it's a legal federal terminology that we use. So the attorney who's arrested is looking for a Rule 35, right? A Rule 35 is when you provide substantial assistance to the government, you can get your sentence reduced. So he's thinking in his mind, "Hey, I'm friends with Salcedo." If I can get him to cooperate, Salcedo might be able to get something for him, but I can get my sentence reduced in Colombia because of the RICO charges. So they have that conversation. 
and Salcedo ultimately agrees to cooperate. And the way that it's going to go down, Eddie tells me, is that Salcedo will, will relay information from Colombia to Eddie Kazarowski, who's the customs agent in Miami, and that Kazarowski will then forward that information to me in Colombia, and that we'll go to Cali and we'll act on that information. I'm like, Eddie, that's not going to work. There's too much of a delay. You know, we're basically been living in Cali for the last year, but what if we're in Bogota? By the time we get there, that information could be 24 hours old. I said, Salcedo's in Cali. I'm in Cali. Let me talk to him directly. This is the only way that this is going to work is if I'm able to deal with this guy face-to-face, me and Dave. And, and I always give Eddie Kazarowski, customs agent, credit for this. He could have very easily said, you know what? I asked Salcedo that, and he didn't want to meet anybody, right? That would have been the very simple explanation and answer. But Eddie says, let me run it by him. He calls me back a short time later and says, Salcedo's agreed to that. Nice. And I was I was actually shocked that that would, would happen. So I always give, you know, Eddie K, as we call him, credit for, you know, putting the investigation, what he what was best for the investigation above of personal stuff. So so he gave me a number to call Salcedo. Dave and I, I'll never forget, it was a, it was a, a early morning. It was about nine o'clock in the morning. I got a number and it was an address to a beauty salon where Salcedo didn't want to, you know, have any number associated to him. So he went to a business, you know, so I called the number and I said, you know, hey, in Spanish, of course, is, you know, is Jorge there? And he said, yes, hold on one minute. So I talked to him. I started talking to him in Spanish and he responds in perfect English. So I'm like, oh, okay. So he basically, I said, hey, I'm the guy that Eddie told you to call. He's like, okay. I said, uh, hey, we're on the ground in Cali. Uh, I'd like to meet you. And you know, I understand you want to do the right thing. He's like, okay, when can we meet? I said, the sooner the better. And he says, okay, I can meet you at SEAT. Now, SEAT is a joint agricultural center. About It's about an hour from where we're at, outside of town, outside of Cali. Probably 30 to 40 minutes from downtown Cali. And as I say, SEAT, Dave Mitchell is with me. And he's Dave is standing in front of me. And he's like, no. No fucking way. No way. <laughs> it's reminiscent of that, that book and movie, The Onion Field, where the two cops were killed. Yes, yes. And uh, exactly. And Dave and I are obviously thinking the same thing at the same time. And I'm like, no, there's no way I'm meeting you out in Seattle. You know, and, and I'm, all these thoughts now are running through my head. They go, here's the head of security for the Cali cartel. He's a counterintelligence officer. He's an expert in, you know, weaponry, explosives, um, you know, intelligence, communications, everything. I'm like, and you want us to meet you an hour outside of Cali? No, it's not going to happen. And, in a field where you can hide bodies. Right. <laughs> yeah. And you'd never be found. So um, I go, no, Seattle, I'm not going out there. If you want to talk, we meet somewhere in the city. I go, I'm, we're in Southern Cali. We're in Seattle, Hardin right now. He's like... <clears throat> no, that's not going to work. I'm too well known. And if we're seen together, it's probably not going to end well for either one of us. And I was like, wow, that's, that's a pretty heavy statement to throw at, uh, at me and Dave, you know, we're 30 years old at the time, 31 young guys, you know, it's probably not going to end well for either one of us. I'm like, Oh shit. So, <laughs> um, so finally I just say, all right, screw it. We'll meet you. What time? It says three o'clock. And Dave's like, what? 
what are you, what are you doing? No. <laughs> and I said, all right, let's do it. And he says, oh, I have two conditions. I go, I'm thinking to myself, this is getting better every minute. I go, what are they? He says, one, no Colombians. If I see anybody who even looks Colombian, the deal's off. I want to see two Americans that I could easily identify as being from the U.S. Embassy. So I told him, I go, dude, and I did. I think I called him, dude. I go, dude, don't worry. When you see when you, when you see us, you won't be disappointed. Because right? we're yeah. big six foot three American, you know, we, we don't look any hint of. A couple of big white boys. Right. A couple of big white farm boys. You want. And, and I go, okay. Number two, he says, come alone. I said, no, I'm not coming alone. We don't go anywhere in Cali by ourselves. I got to come with my partner. And he's like, okay. Again, as long as he's not Colombian or he doesn't look Colombian. So, again, don't worry. So he says, okay. So he says, all right, let's meet at three o'clock and then at Seattle. I'll find you. I said, okay. So we hang up the phone and Dave's like, oh, what, are you do? what are you doing? We need permission to talk to this guy. Like, look. We've already violated every basic protocol. What's one more here, rule? Right? What the hell? You look at Dave and say, granted. We're not even supposed to leave the police base, right? So here we are. You know, we're out in the middle. We're doing our own unilateral stuff. We're already off the base. What's what's an hour away? So we. Uh, so he says 3 o'clock. He goes, dude, this could be an ambush. I mean, this, this could be a trap. I go, yeah, that's why we're going to get out there first. So we, we drove immediately back to the safe house, CIA safe house. We grab our gear. We had these big black gear bags. We had, you know, M4s and ammo and binocular, everything you could think of that we would need. And um, Dave's like, oh, we got to call the embassy. You know, look, the em- no, 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 the, no, the no. DA's not going to approve. No. I said, first of all, I so I'm trying to cover. I'm like, dude, the phones can be tapped. We don't want to let out what we're doing, you know. Well, you already know the phones can be tapped. Yeah. Well, yeah. But we are in the new embassy now at this point. So. He goes, oh, we got to get permission. The ambassador's not going to let us. We got to get permission with DA. No, no one's going to give us permission. So we're just going to go. He goes, but we should probably have another gun. I said, yeah, you're probably right about that. So we go back to the safe house and we go to talk to one of our our, um, CIA friends who's there in the safe house. He doesn't really know what we're doing, but we're telling him, hey, we got to go talk to this really well-placed source. We got to, you know, we need another gun. Well, who is it? Uh, he's a security guy for the cartel. So he's an intelligence officer? I, well, yeah. I'm not. Where are you meeting him at? Um, at CI. You guys are fucking crazy. I'm not going out there. I can, Mike, <laughs> we need help. We need an extra gun. You got to cover our backs. He's like, no effing way. I'm not going. Mike, this is. we're not joking. We're, this is serious. No, I'm not going. All right. Well. We're going. This is where we're going to be. And if you don't hear from us by like 3.15 or 3.30, send the cavalry because something's probably happened. So we get out there at about 12 o'clock, three hours before the meeting. So we scope the whole area out. We find the high ground. We get a good vantage point where we can see cars coming in off the road. We check the whole area. You know, we got spots where... You know, we can set up and return fire. We got E&E routes if we need them. We got went over combo plan, everything. So, because we don't know what to expect. Is this guy for real? Is this, is this a setup? Are they going to try to grab us? Are they going to try to, when we show up, to have the cops come and just like I told you, they can't buy you or whatever. They discredit you. So, we thought, oh, maybe, maybe they'll have the cops come and arrest us. That way we'll get thrown out of the country. So, we had all these thoughts going through our mind. And so... 
before we hung up the phone, he told me, you know, I'll be driving a silver Land Cruiser and I'll be there at three. So right at three o'clock, you know, looking through binoculars, we see the a silver Land Cruiser come in. Looks like one person's driving. He drives all around, and finally, there's these long, these long dirt roads where you can just see. He sees our car parked on this uh, dirt road. He comes down, passes our car, turns around, it's about 50 feet apart, and gets out of the car. With the, he has, he's holding something in his hand. I tell him, you know, put your hands up, turn around, you know, pick your shirt up. So, you know, we're Dave and I are both again, we're arm, armed to the hilt. Dave goes over, checks the vehicle, vehicle's clear, pats him down real quick. He's clear, no weapons, and he's got his Colombian ID in his hand. So we go into the car and talk, and he shows me the ID, and I see it's him. And uh, so we start talking. And, you know, we sat there, and he first he starts off by saying, look, this is going to be a one-time meeting. This is going to be very brief. And, you know, I'll, I'll help you try to catch Miguel Rodriguez because I pretty much at this point know where he's at. So three hours later, we're <laughs> still there. We're still talking and we're making plans to meet again. So did you check in with Mikey? We did check as soon as he showed up. We told Mike, call oh, okay. me in 15 minutes. If you don't hear from us, send help, you know. Yep, so, yep. Um, uh, so we went over a ton of stuff. So in that three hours... You know, we formed a good a good bond. Um, like I said, he was it's a one-time meeting. Now we're meeting again. He's providing us with all kind of info. We're going back and forth, we're strategizing. So, and you know, 10 minutes into the conversation, you know, Dave and I were asking him questions about stuff that we knew the answers to, and he knew immediately, and you know how it is when you talk to those sources, Steve, that are really well placed. I knew immediately that this guy was was for real. He's, he's legit. He's legit. He knew, you know, every question he answered, we knew because we said, where's Miguel? He said, he's in the Santa Rita area, which we knew from the other source that we, we talked about with Miguel at the Solomon Prado house where we missed him where he was hiding under the jacuzzi. He had told us like, Hey, I don't know where he's at, but he's by the zoo. And the zoo is in the same, the Santa Rita area. So he goes, he's in the Santa Rita area. Oh, who's he with? Well, he swapped out his old, uh, executive assistant, uh, Mateo, who's the guy we were following, remember? And he says he's got a new one named Fertro Castillo. So, and we, so when they swapped him out, uh, had you been following um, Mateo, right? The other one? Right. No, no. Would he? I'm sorry. So we were, when we were following Mateo, the Zapata guy, he was on, he was on his break from Miguel. Miguel would swap those two out. Got it. So when okay. we were following, he wasn't doing anything. He wasn't with Miguel, as we found out later. Oh, yeah. So you were you were following somebody that couldn't lead you to anybody. Exactly. But we didn't know that at the time. Yeah. So and, and keep that in mind when we go further down the road here for the story. So he says, uh, Percho Castillo was with him. I said, OK. And then he started telling the uh, Salcedo is telling us about uh, the intelligence and the security infrastructure. Um, what kind of houses where the, where Miguel stays and Hilberto stay. They like these to stay where there's one road in. One road, one way out, one way in, one way out, and apartments or houses that are backed up to the mountain, because he said the police and the military would never come down the mountain. So remember that for later on in the story too. Um, and he goes, the security is posted here, and he told us where he drew us a diagram of everything. Security is here. I just don't know the building name. 
I have an idea of which building it is, but I don't know the name because I'm afraid to drive. So I'll say it's like, I'm afraid to drive in there because if they see me, you know, at the building, they're going to, you know, somebody sees me, what, what are you doing here? Why are you here? You weren't supposed to meet with Miguel and he didn't want to jeopardize himself. So we make a plan that night to try to identify the building. Salcedo goes and does what he does. Dave and I go and do what we do. As it turns out, we were both doing the same thing. We were both sitting up in the mountain, looking at the apartment the building, trying to identify which floor Miguel was on. Because the other thing Salcedo told us was uh, like a gold, I mean, just unbelievable information. Miguel stays up late in, into the night till four or five in the morning, talking with all the European contacts. So wherever he's at, those apartments are- You'll see a light on. Those, they'll be, you can identify it. It's usually the last apartment in any building that has a light on. So we sat there, sure enough, by 12 o'clock, every, every light in the apartment goes out, except for two. One on the eighth floor, one on the fourth floor. So we noticed that. He tells us about uh, the interior, what Miguel likes. He likes Panasonic phones because Miguel was a neurotic. He liked Panasonic phones. He had to have stuff a certain way. He was hypoglycemic, so he had to eat certain kinds of food. So when you go into the refrigerator, look for those kinds of foods. The, the official car of the Cali cartel was the Mazda 626. They only drove Mazdas. So go down into the garage, look for the Mazda. Here's the license plate that, that Furcho drives around in. Why be so predictable like that? Why a Mazda 626? Because it was low profile and it didn't stand out and it didn't look like a narco car. And it was reliable and dependable. And Miguel was very cheap and didn't like to spend money on expenses. And, you know, it was just a reliable, low-key, nondescript vehicle that he liked. And once when he... As opposed to a Mercedes-Benz 300 with tinted windows? Exactly. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> Dif different scenarios, trying to achieve a different result. But That's right. That's right. Um, so we got all this great intel and this insight and that there were two, two Afro-Colombian maids who were working in the, uh, in the apartment with, uh, with Miguel. So based on the lighting structure, we're out till four or five that night. We, uh, we go, okay, it's just these two apartments. So we also call back to Bogota, Sandy Smith. Remember Sandy Smith? So we, we have her say, Sandy, check this building see if anything pops on ownership on the apartments. So she comes back and she tells us, look, there's two apartments in that building that come back to known cartel operatives. One, they both came back to a Sicario. It was well known for, uh, uh, for Miguel Rodriguez, a guy called Memolata. And she goes, the two apartments that, the, that he owns are 801 and 402. Go, well, those were the ones with the lights were on. So, we go back the next morning and we meet with Salcedo. And so before that, too, he, he tells us, look, at 12 o'clock, I'm going to pull security out so you guys can drive through there, get the lay of the land and identify, you know, see the name on the building. So he was able to do that. We drove through, just didn't even stop. We drove through, came around, came back out, got the name of the building and we were good to go. So we met Salcedo the next morning and he says, I, hey. I, I identified the, the place where Miguel's at. So ahead of time, because you know how when you deal with these these sources, you always got to let them know that you know more than they do kind of thing. And even when we were debriefing them, we, I threw out a couple of things that he was like, how do you guys know that? Like, hey, we I tell you, we got other sources. We're close. Remember, we captured Alberto. 
And he told us about the Solomon Prado raid, too. That's how we knew Miguel was under the jacuzzi. And I tell you, like, man, we got other sources. We're close. We got Hilberto. We can catch Miguel without you, but, you know, it'd be nice if you help us. So, so we'd like to make your cooperation known to the United States attorney and to the government officials. And well, yeah, you, you always, you know, you know, you wanted to play from a position of power and let him know that we knew a lot more than we were letting on. And uh, hey, real quick, Chris, before you dive into the rest of that, because, you know, we're pretty deep into the story. Remind people, why was Saucedo um, cooperating? What was in it for him? Well, he is. OK, so initially Salcedo gets recruited by the Cali cartel back in 1989. OK, and the reason he gets recruited is Mario Del Vasto, he's the major, the head of security, his old army buddy, recruits him and tells him, look, the gentlemen of Cali are at war with Pablo Escobar. We I know that you have British and uh, other mercenary contacts that the Godfathers want to use to try and kill Pablo. So that's the genesis of the meeting. Of course, Delvasto, when he when he has uh, Salcedo meet with them, he doesn't tell him what the purpose of the meeting is. Salcedo basically goes into the meeting blind, and they tell him, Jorge, we want to use your British mercenary context to kill Pablo Escobar. You know, of course, Salcedo almost has a heart attack, like, what? What are you talking about? So he realizes it's like from the Godfather. It's an offer that he can't refuse. I mean, they kind of played their hand. They told him what they were looking for, and he was afraid if he didn't say yes that they would basically kill him. So, so he gets recruited because of his contacts with the British mercenaries. You know, so those whole British mercenaries come into Colombia. They train for a couple months. They launched this elaborate helicopter operation to attack Pablo um, in 1989 uh, at uh, Napoli's where there's a soccer game. So they launched this operation. Of course, nothing goes as planned. The helicopter crashes, the pilot's killed, and the whole operation goes to shit. So um, Salcedo is thinking like, okay, you know, I guess I'm, I, I guess I'm done. The, you, this is what you wanted me for the operation failed. And Miguel's like, no, sorry, you're, you're basically in the service of the cartel. You, you, you can't leave kind of thing. So he's basically stuck there. And over the years, he, you know, with his communications background and intelligence background, he rises up through the, through the ranks. But the more he witnesses, you know, he witnessed that murder of Rodimus Trujillo at the Finca. That's how we knew about it. With the two SUVs? No, the one where they uh, put the bags oh, over the his... head, carved them yeah. up, threw them in the river. Yeah, that um, one. Okay. I believe he was actually there, too, at the, with the SUV one. If not, he, if he wasn't there, he knew about it. And just the other things that he saw with the violence and the corruption, he was like, you know what? This isn't what I signed up for. I need to get out of here. And... He saw the writing on the wall, like we talked about before. Look, you know, uh, the Berlin Wall was gone. Communism was gone. Pablo was gone. Saddam Hussein was driven out of Kuwait. Every resource in the U.S. and Colombian government is focused on Cali. It's just a matter of time at this point. It's just a matter of time that, that they get killed or arrested, or, and, and so do I. So he's trying to find a way out. And while we were trying to find a way into the cartel, Salcedo was trying to find a way out of the cartel. We hook up and it makes that that perfect storm. So he figures this is my way out through Rosenthal, through the uh, attorney in Miami, and maybe I can get some credit for it too. And 
this is basically the only way I can get out. That's why he gets to the point where he's at now and he's meeting with us, hoping that with the resources of the U.S. government, we can capture Miguel, get rid of Pacho, rescue Palomari, who's been targeted to be assassinated by the cartel, and I can get to the States and live my life. That next morning, we meet. And before we meet, I write down on a piece of paper, you know, a little piece of paper like this, I put 402 and 801. And I have him in both hands. And he goes, I think I found out where Miguel was. And I said, so did we. And he kind of looks at me with that cock, like the dog look. You know, I go, pick a hand. And he, he taps my uh, left hand and I open it and it says 402. I said, hit the other one. Yeah. Taps it. It's 801. He goes, it's 402. And uh, he goes, it's 402. He goes, how did you guys know that? I go, hey, I told you. We have other sources and means and methods. So he was like, I remember looking at him. He was like, man, these, these guys know what they're doing. It's pretty good. But it was because Sandy had found the exact, you know, number through the uh, through the property checks and stuff. You need that kind of thing to keep him on his toes that he, that yeah, he can't exactly pull the right. wool over you. Well, and that's the power. Right. I mean, you show him that, hey, we need you, but, you know, we really don't need you. So if you want to be valuable— it's like giving blood at the Red Cross. You got to give till it hurts, pal. Right. And you know, when you're dealing with these high level guys, you got to let them know that, yeah. like, look, we're capable of doing what we're doing. We're not just these two young kids from the, from the, from the cornfields that don't know anything about anything. We, we know what we're doing. We can handle this. Don't worry. Kind of thing. And, um, and before that, that meeting, when we left, which really, you know, I look back on all the time with Dave, we talk about Salcedo. He says, okay, I'm in. My life is in your hands, and so is my family. And that's what he left us with. Like, hey, my life is in your hands. I'm trusting you, you two foreigners who I've never met before. I'm going all in. It's up to you. You gotta, you gotta protect me. You gotta take care of me. You know, and it, and it's, you know, probably a lot of people probably think that, well, that's no big deal. You just like, I'm not gonna worry about him. You know, we're gonna use him, and 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 whatever happens to him happens to him. But that's not really the way it is. You you actually do feel. A personal responsibility to help these people if they're going to help you. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. And his one condition, going back to the Canefield meeting, his one condition when we met was, I want safe passage for me and my family to the U.S. I don't really care about the reward money, which there was substantial reward money for the rest of Miguel at the time. Just I want to get to the U.S. and I want my family to be safe. Do I have your word on that? And you know, Dave and I looked at each other and like. Yeah, you got our word. We'll we'll get you to the states. And that's when he said, "Okay, then my life is in your hands." So um, we figured that we had a good target. Now we had identified the two apartments that we thought Miguel was at. So we decided uh, we did one more night of surveillance. We confirmed the lighting pattern in the in the apartment. Uh, we called back to uh, we ca called back to Ruben and uh, and Jerry in Bogota, and we said, you know, hey. And he was, and he told us too about the corruption. Whatever you do, don't use the bloke. He gave us names of people in the in the police bloke that were corrupt, that were on the payroll, that he met with personally, that was advising them of every move that we had made. So we had to shift our plan. So we brought anti narcotics and police from Bogota over land. We didn't use the bloke, and we basically lied to the prosecutor by saying that we were going to hit a lab, which ended up being a mistake. So uh, we met outside of Cali at four o'clock in the morning on July 15th. 
we took a very circuitous route through the city so that if anybody was following us, they wouldn't know what we were doing. And we basically arrive at uh, uh, at Aficio, the Santa Rita was the name of the building, Colinas de Santa Rita. And so we get out, and the first thing the fiscal, the prosecutor says is, this doesn't look like a lab site. He said, it's not, you know, we're here to arrest Miguel Rodriguez. Well, there's a laboratory in 402 or 801, we're pretty sure. So that turned into a cluster. <laughs> She's like, oh, I need to get a new warrant. She had to go back to the, the prosecutor in Cali, which is what we tried to avoid. So, and then they, they, they called the bloke, right? So they had to call the police from Cali at the Finca, which was another problem. And so, of course, two hours later, we finally get into the building. We go in the first Dave, Dave, Ruben, and Jerry go into the apartment. I go down into the garage first thing. I go to the parking space, 402. Boom, there's the Mazda, there's the license plate. Okay, all right, we're off to a good start. We go into the apartment. I open the refrigerator, all, you know, salads, fresh fruit, everything because he was hypoglycemic. I look at the telephone, there's the trunking system where there were like 25 or 30 different phone lines coming into the, into the apartment there hooked up to the phone so that if you ever called a number, it would go through a relay station and then the, re the call would be patched over to uh, where Miguel was at. So the number that you called was never really the number where he was at. So I saw the phone. It was a Panasonic. Uh, go further into the apartment. There's Fercho, Jorge Castillo, the guy who was his executive assistant. The two Afro-Colombian maids are in the, in the, uh, in the apartment. This has to be the place. He's here. So everything checked off. So, of course, we go through the apartment. There's nothing, right? There's absolutely nothing. Completely tidy apartment. Nothing. So we start searching. Don't really find anything. Find a couple little things. Found like a piece of paper under a burning candle with the initials MRO, Miguel Rodriguez Oruela. Found the black sunglasses, the famous sunglasses where they would put them on uh, anybody who was going to meet Miguel. They spray painted the inside of the sunglasses black so, the, so that when you, you put glasses on like this, they were completely black. You couldn't see out of them. You know, you were, you were basically blind. So they would drive around and take you to wherever Miguel was. You couldn't see where they were going. So little clues like that that Miguel was there, but nothing. Can't find anything. The cops that we brought... They're in the back bedroom, sitting on the bed, watching a soccer game. <laughs> okay, I know where this is going. <laughs> Kid you not. They're there the whole time. Nobody's really helping us search. Just the four of us were, you know, Dave, Ruben, Jerry, and I. A couple of the Colombians were looking. After like 20 minutes, hey, he's not here. They give up. So we're finally able to make contact with Salcedo. He goes, he, he, I had a sky pager. I don't know if we talked about that. Yeah, the old sky pagers that were two-way, right? They were two-way, but it was, back then, everybody communicated in, in Cali or Columbia with pagers, most of the traffickers. And it was either digital, like the sky pager I had, you could put a number in, or, you remember this, Steve, too, the pagers, you would call into, like, an operator, and you would leave a message. Like, you would say, um, Coligo, one, two, three, four, five, and that was a pager assigned to Morgan, and you would say, and she'd say, message, say, uh, call, call Murph. And, okay, since you would type it in and that message would come across your pager, call Murph. So, of course, Cali had all the pager companies infiltrated, uh, except for Skypage. So, 
when we communicate with Salcedo, we would communicate by pager and we would pass numbers back and forth. So we would put in a number, say one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Our code was to subtract one from the number, and that was really the number that we were at. So if you put in one, 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 the real number would be zero, 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 zero. So just an added security thing. So he pages us, <clears throat> call Patricia. That was our code name for him and for us. So we call him. He's at a cafe. We're at a pizza hut right outside the apartment. He's like, look, Miguel is there. I'm with William. He's there. He's in, he's in the bathroom. Well, what do you mean he's in the bathroom? There's like five bathrooms in the apartment. He's in a, there's a, is a, he's in a, a hidden coletta. He's behind the wall. He's in the bathroom. I don't know where, but he's in one of the bathrooms. So he said, okay. Now this is hours into the raid, right? <clears throat> Cops are watching soccer. Everybody's sitting around. Nobody's doing anything. Well, see, that's your secret weapon. Like old guys like us, we had to take a pee break. You keep him in that coletta long enough, he's going to have to go. Well, wait to hear what he had in the coletta. I'll tell you after later on. Oh, so a, a bag. Okay. So, but Salcedo also tells us, he goes, look, is there a, is there like a big wooden desk in the apartment? We said, yeah. He goes, in the wooden desk is a hidden compartment. Miguel keeps his most sensitive and secret documents in that desk. He's like, look, we went through the desk. There's nothing in there. He goes, look, there's a compartment in there. You got to find it. That'll buy you more time to keep searching. So we're playing around with the desk. We're pulling drawer. We can't find it. There's nothing here. So finally, Jerry, Jerry Salome, he's pissed. He's we're there. He's tired. He's sweaty. He picks up the desk and just tips it over. And you know, those floors in Columbia, they're all like those marble floors and everything. This desk just hits that floor with this tremendous thud and just breaks apart and splinters open. And when the desk falls, I look underneath and I'm like, what is that? So son of a bitch, there's like a little compartment in the back with these three thin brown, uh, three thin leather briefcases. <clears throat> so we pull the briefcases out. We start looking at them real quick. Like, holy shit. These were like the most explosive documents that you could ever imagine. There were cancel. Yeah, it was a big jackpot. There were canceled checks to the uh, uh, Ernesto Samper's campaign treasurer. 40 million pesos. Whoa. Letters. Presidential candidate who became president. <clears throat> yeah. Letters to uh, other people in the government, Minister of Defense, other than canceled, hundreds of canceled checks. So we're like, this is gold mine. So we take the documents back over onto this table. And then uh, General Serrano is there. And he starts going through the documents. And the other, the colonel was there. I think the colonel was there too. And they start looking at these documents and they realize what's there. Like, these are explosive documents. And they're like, we got to get these back to Bogota. And boom, they leave, right? So at that point, the head of the the colonel in charge of the unit left, and everything kind of went to shit because there was nobody in charge. But they took they took all the – they took your, your cash that you found, everything with them, right? They took the documents with them. So Did those things disappear? No. Uh, we got copies of them later, and that ended up going on to the – uh, developed the case Processor Ocho Mill, which was the case against Sam Pair for the campaign finance. And then that just was a whole shitstorm in Colombia. The, they uh, ended up bringing in the campaign, uh, the treasurer, Santiago Medina, the minister of defense, Fernando Botero, ended up uh, getting fired. He ended up getting arrested. The whole government was in shambles. It caused a, a, a huge, huge political issue in Colombia. And it really did show that 
that you know the corruption that, did go all the way to the top. That the Cali did finance the you know the the, the presidential campaign of Ernesto Samper. So, um, but then that kind of gave everybody like a second life. Like, oh shit! If he's not here, he was here. So this is good info. We're in the right place. So a couple hours still go on, and we're finally able to get into this half bath. And, you know, Dave and I are looking and we're all over the place. And what took so long? I mean, was it just was it were you guys being hamstrung by the limitations of the warrant? Were they not letting you in there? What took you once you got the information from Salcedo? What took so long to get to the the bathroom? Well, we we kept looking in every bathroom and there's nothing that we can see that was obvious that there was some kind of hiding compartment there. There was nothing that we could see. We went up to other floors. We started measuring the bathrooms, you know, and checking the size. So we started to focus in on this half bathroom in the hallway that appeared to be a little bit smaller by measurements from the other rooms. So, you know, I get down on the floor and then, you know, people were pissing on the floor and it was just a nasty scene. And I look under the cabinet and I see like this little thing, like running across the top of the board. I'm thinking, what the hell is this thing? And it kind of disappears into the wall. So I open up the cabinet. I open up the cabinet of the bathroom and it hits the toilet. And by this time, we're, we're like so mentally, we've been at this for months where I'm, I'm exhausted. And the first thing I can think of is goes, look at this, look at this shoddy craftsmanship. How can you build a sink that like hits the toilet? You know, and Dave's like, you dumbass. It's because it's probably the Coletta's right behind here. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you're, yeah, you're probably right. So, so we 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 identify the wall where we think the actual entrance of the collect is. So we call Jerry in, we call Ruben in, and Jerry gets to drill, and he he starts drilling into the wall. The drill bit breaks. He puts another one in, drills it, goes in about an inch. Boom! The drill bit breaks. Like, what the hell? What's going? You know, nothing's going right today. So he finally the third drill bit. He it's like this 12 inch drill and puts it in and goes, it goes in. We go unaccounted for space. Right. So we like, there's a, there's a void there. This has to be the place. So Reuben comes in with the hammer, starts hitting the, the wall with the sledgehammer. And then as we're doing that, this one CMP officer kind of, it's a small bathroom. He's standing in the doorway. He kind of runs out and uh, comes back in with the fiscal, the prosecutor and the prosecutor basically says in, in Spanish, you are to cease and desist. You are conducting an illegal, illegal operation in Colombia. You are damaging and destroying property in violation of Colombian law. Stop immediately. And we all kind of look at each other like, is this guy joking? What, is he kidding? And he, he, wasn't, he wasn't kidding. We got out of the... Uh, out of the- oh, I was going to say, no habla espanol. Sorry, prosecutor. Uh, it, was <laughs> very, it was very clear what he was saying. And he goes over to the front door. He locks the door, puts the keys in his pocket, pulls out. You know how they walked around with those little portable typewriters, Steve? The, pulls oh, out yeah. the typewriter, sits down at the desk, at, the, at the, the dining room table. Give me your carnets, your, you know, your yeah. diplomatic IDs. And he starts typing up a complaint. Basically, a denuncio saying that we were in violation of Colombian law. We're like, dude, I didn't tell, I didn't call out Fiscal, dude. Senor, Miguel Rodriguez is behind the wall. He's like, 
I don't care. You guys are conducting an illegal operation. I said, are we under arrest? He goes, no. I said, well, then I'm leaving. He goes, no, you're not. I said, so they were under arrest. He goes, no. So I said, okay, we're not getting anywhere here. So I said, we, we got I want to call the embassy. So Ruben gets on the phone. He calls back to Tony Seneca and basically tells him, hey, we're detained here in the, uh, in the apartment. <clears throat> We've been shut down. And that's it. So we were basically escorted out of the apartment. We were given a copy of the denuncio, the complaint, where we were cited for conducting an illegal operation. And we had to leave the apartment. And that's when I had to make the one dreaded phone call. I had to call Salcedo and tell him that we didn't find him and that we were basically arrested and we were thrown out of the apartment. And he's like, no, no, you can't. You got it. You can't leave. You, you can't leave. I'm, if, you, if you leave, I'm dead. You can't leave. I'm like, his code name was Sean. We called him Sean because we never wanted to use his real name over the phone. Like, Sean, we're, we got arrested. We have to leave. We're shut down. We're gone. He's like, I'm a dead man. Went in. We hung up the phone and we were escorted out of the building and we were made to leave. And it was later that night. We flew back to Bogota. And I remember on the flight talking to Dave and Jerry and Ruben. I said, man, this was the lowest point in my law enforcement career. You know, we, we screwed up. We let Sean down. And... Dave said, what do you think is going to happen to Salcedo? I said, I mean, exact words. I go, yeah, he's a dead man walking. You know, and we at that point, we couldn't do anything. You know, it felt horrible. And uh, so we found out later on what happened was, is that after we left, Furcho, the executive assistant, called Miguel's son, <clears throat> said, send, send Salcedo, send the corrupt captain that worked at the bloke that was with us all the time. And they went back into the apartment and basically took Miguel out of the apartment and took him to a new safe house. And, you know, we got summoned to the ambassador's residence that following weekday, whenever, uh, whenever that was the next day or the day after. And so let me tell you, we got, we got an ass chilling from the ambassador about, uh, you know, why we why we were even there on the raid, right? Why were we there? And why were we uh, knocking down the wall with a sledgehammer and drilling holes in the wall and conducting a unilateral operation when we weren't supposed to leave the police base? You know, so we got our asses handed to us. And um, then he kind of, oh, and anyway, he showed us the complaint, We, you know, which we already had a copy of, where we got arrested. It was on the TV. They showed on the Columbia TV our names turned into a big thing. We were on the cover of Savannah Magazine. You know, you know, DEA in Columbia, you know, what are they doing? Unilateral operation. Again, trying to discredit us. And um, Frechette, the ambassador, Ambassador Frechette said, you know, if anything like this happens again, you guys are gone. You're out of the country. Done. End of story. And then he kind of softened his tone a little bit and he said, but you know what? It looks like you were right. And we were like, what are you talking about? And he said he had just talked to General Serrano that the police went back in there. Because we before we left, we told him, place police outside the apartment, place police outside the building because he's here. Don't let him leave. Right. So if we leave, when we got thrown out, he's got to come out eventually. When he comes out, you guys grab him. 
So, of course, they stayed out there for like an hour and they left and that was the end of that. But when the police reentered the building, the apartment, the collective was broken in. And they had to, when they had taken Miguel out and we had photographs of the collector, there was water in there. There was a stool to sit down in there. There was peanuts for him to eat on. There was an oxygen tank and an oxygen mask. There was bloody clothing in the collector or on the floor in the bathroom. You know, the, the, the theory was that we had hit him with the drill. I mean, Jerry, Jerry sticks by that story that he got him with the drill. And if it was me who had the drill, I would probably stick by that story. But um, I, I think that, uh, you know, putting that drill in there and all that dust and stuff in there and that, he, you know, he was coughing and, you know, he had a bloody nose. I mean, I think it was that he was wiping his nose and his mouth. But hey, how was how was entry into the Coletta affected? I mean, did you guys ever find out what the hidden switch was or what the sequence was? So what happens is any in any of those apartments or houses that the, the cartel was staying at, they had the coletta and they always opened from the inside, right? So they, they opened, you would push the door in. So the doors were always open in case they had to get in quick. So if they had to get in quick, they would go into the coletta and they would secure the door of the coletta or the hidden compartment from the inside, right? So in this case, there were these huge bolts, these latches that went across the concrete. And I mean, this wasn't just like some bullshit construction. I mean, these were made by like architects and, you know, carpenters. These things were phenomenal. And when that whole wall was closed, you couldn't tell that there was any kind of opening there. Only it was those little latches. And this latch was just a little door there. So he would go in, latch it from the inside. So when Salcedo and, the, and Captain Butrago, who was the corrupt captain, came in to get him, Miguel kind of unlatched the uh, doors from the inside. They hammered away a little bit and the coletta was broken open. So it was a big, big hole in the wall with the door open on the bottom. We've got good photos of, uh, uh, of that, the police did anyway. Uh, so that's what uh, Ambassador Prechette showed us. And he was like, you know what? You're lucky that the police went back in there and you're lucky that they found what they found because you guys were right. You were on the right track, but that's still no excuse for conducting a unilateral operation and damaging the property. So we basically said, yeah, you're right. It won't happen again. Until next time. Until next time. You know, <laughs> Until it happened again, right? And then, uh, you know, away we went with our, our tail between <laughs> our legs, you know, getting yelled at by the ambassador and not knowing whether or not Salcedo was still alive. And then it was a waiting game. You know, we waited a couple days. Um, Salcedo finally called us about five days later. And, you know, the first thing I said to him was, do we need to get you out? Do we need to, like, evacuate, extract you and your family? He's like, no, I'm good. They don't think it was me. I had never been to that apartment. I had never been inside. I didn't know where the Coletta was. And uh, I was assigned to interrogate Furcho, who was the executive assistant. Of course, Furcho said that they were talking to some woman named Patricia which was our code name. So they, th they thought it was a woman, or at least they knew it was a code name. They didn't, may not have bought the whole story. So, um, so he says, no, I'm, I'm good. <clears throat> but I think I found the new apartment where Miguel is hiding. So <clears throat> here we go again. So the ambassador tells us again, 
No unilateral activity under any circumstances. Here we go again. This is not your country. Work with the Colombians. <laughs> You're here in a support and advisory capacity. You know, the whole, all the buzzwords. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Won't happen again. So what's the first thing we do is we go to Cali. We meet with Salcedo and we start doing unilateral surveillance on, on the building where we thought Miguel was hiding. So at this point in time, Salcedo tells us, look, <clears throat> Based on where the security now, Miguel is being really cautious. Nobody can know where he, the building he's in. Nobody knows what floor he's on. All Salcedo knows is that where he puts perimeter security. And going back, remember we talked about all that stuff he told us. We get back to later in the story. Well, remember one way in, one way out. So based on where the perimeter security was we were able to narrow it down to two buildings. It could have only been the two buildings in this area based on where the security was. So Dave and I, and then Jerry came along too. We started doing surveillance on these two buildings, the same thing. <clears throat> and it was in this, we had a perfect vantage point. There was a park, the, uh, the park, there's a statue of, a uh, statue of Balakazar in uh, Cali. And it's a park, so at night, a lot of the locals would go up there. They would drink beer. They would hang out. Um, they would buy food from local street vendors. And you would watch the burning sugar cane in the distance because it was from an elevated spot. So it was a place to hang out. So I thought, like, dude, this is the best surveillance spot. We can go up there and drink beer and hang out. And it's really not like it's really not like work. So we went up there for like four or five nights in a row, and we were drinking beer, hanging out, you know, trying to blend in and watching the lighting pattern on the two buildings. So we were able to narrow it down, we thought, to the 10th floor, which was the only lights that stayed on past midnight. So Miguel kind of wised up. He wouldn't stay up till four or five in the morning. He'd stay up till maybe one. And he turned the lights out because there was something in the newspaper that we found the apartment by watching the lights. <clears throat> so... um but then Salcedo gives us one key piece of information. He says, look, he goes, Miguel's changed his maids again. He's back to the two Afro-Colombian maids. So I said, okay. So we're sitting there. We're good, probably 800 meters from the target. We're almost at eye level on the 10th floor. And a light comes on in the kitchen, where what we think is the kitchen area, at about midnight. And I'm looking through the binoculars, and I'm like, hey, there's people moving around. And I'm looking, looking, and I go, Dave, it looks like there's two black maids, two Afro-Columbian maids in, in the kitchen, and it's midnight. I go, that's got to be the apartment. M Miguel has to eat at certain hours to control his, his uh, hypoglycemia. You know, the two African-American maids, the light's on late. That's got to be it. So he's like, give me those binoculars. Let me see. And he's like, and he goes, I can't see anything through this. I, are you sure? I'm like, I, I think, I think I'm sure. I, you know, as I look again, I go, yeah, yeah, that's it. <clears throat> so we go and meet with Salcedo and we tell him, hey, we think we found the, we think we found the apartment. We think it's the 10th floor. And we told him what we found. Now, just when you could think things get worse, right? The head of the, the, the new head of the Colombian armed forces was, an army general that was being paid by the Cali cartel, if you can believe that. So his rank would be equivalent to the 
head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, right? He controls the, all. He's like a four-star general, you know, the head of he everything. He controls yeah. the entire armed forces in Colombia. And he is now coming into office on Monday morning, and he wants a briefing on all DEA operations targeting the Cali cartel. Salcedo tells us this, and he's like, look, this guy is being paid by Cali. I'm 100% sure of it. You, you guys can't obviously go and brief him and tell him what we're doing and who the sources are or I'm dead. So we decide to speed up the operation by a day. We do it on, a, <clears throat> I think we did it on a Sunday morning. And he's like, yeah, but we got to be sure. I don't know if this is the right apartment. I look, this is the best intel we got. We got to go. We got to go now. So we had already moved in a, another unit, a unit of Colombian Navy SEALs uh, that were on standby. We were going to use them for the raid because that was the unit that we knew couldn't be, there wasn't infiltrated by, they were out of Buena Ventura and they never, they never participated in law enforcement ops. So our, our best guess is that they weren't infiltrated. Um, we brought some forces over land from, from Bogota. And we had also used some forces from the Colombian vetted unit that we had used before from the, from the agency vetted unit. And the op plan was to come down a water, uh, what's the word? Like a, like a aqueduct or a drainage aqueduct. 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 They could say there was an aqueduct there that we could access that was about maybe a quarter mile long that led to the edge of a mountain. And then we have to go down the mountain and we can come up behind uh, the building rather than pass by the security, which was the only way to come in and out. But don't you still have the same problem with the Fiscalia? Uh, you, you still got to get warrants, right? You still got to get uh, permission. And it wasn't that your risk the last time? It was, but based on capturing Gilberto, the information was good on uh, the Miguel Rodriguez raid, even though it failed. We recovered the documents and the information was right on. We were able to go to the attorney general uh, of Valvieso and we got, check this out. We told him, we go, look, he has a compartment in the room. And in those days, you had to knock on the door, wait for somebody to come and answer the door. I go, look, if we do that, he's going to get in the Coletta. We're never going to find him. He's going to be in the hidden compartment. We'll never see him again. So we got special permission from the attorney general of Valvieso to knock the door down. Just go up, like a no-knock warrant, just go and boom, knock it down. And we got to handpick our prosecutor, the fiscal, and we didn't tell her where we were going or what the target was. That was the rule. That was the that was what we laid out on the table. And Valavieso said, Do it. Do it. This is an his his basic words were this is an exception to the rule, which I give him a lot of credit. To, you know, he was very straightforward, very helpful with what we were doing. So we got the fiscal, doesn't know where we're going, doesn't know what the target is. Nobody knows the target except for Dave and I. Nobody knows where we're going. We're the only ones that know. And Jerry, Jerry knew the target because he was on surveillance with us. Um, so we meet way outside the city, off the interstate. We do a briefing. Hey, we're gonna go hit a we're gonna go hit an apartment. That's all you really need to know. We drive again around in these securitist routes. We drive uh, very close to where we arrested Gilberto. We insert on the hillside. We go up into the aqueduct. We take the aqueduct to the edge of the mountain. And, of course, you know, there's stray dogs. They're barking. What a ruckus. You were thinking, like, oh, my God, the entire Cali can hear us coming. 
you know, with these dogs. And it was uh, it was dark, and coming down that mountain was really really treacherous. I mean, it was it was bad. And at one point, there's only a couple of people who were able to make it down down the mountain. So, Dave, did that include the gringos? Yeah, one one. So Dave Mitchell's on top of the mountain, and his job is to visually watch the 10th floor apartment with binoculars in case any lights come on, if there's any movement, and to stay in radio contact. He was kind of like our, our comm center. I, when I get back to the, we get to the edge of the mountain, I brief everybody with Dave. Okay, this is where we're going. We're going after Miguel. That's the target right there. And you can see it. It's just like this huge white pillar, like the Lord of the Rings, where in the, the, the big white city, that's what it looked like because it's the only thing you could see. And so Jerry takes the lead. He goes down the mountain. I backtrack and I get in my car just in case something goes wrong. So I'm right outside of where the security is at. So they go down the mountain, like 10 minutes. I'm waiting 15 minutes, waiting 20 minutes. Finally, Jerry gets on the radio and goes, we need help. What's the matter? You need to come, like, respond ASAP. Okay. So I drive real slow past the security. It was a single car. I figured it wouldn't attract that much attention. And I drive, and I'm able to get in front of the building uh, where they're at. And I see the two, the Porteros, they had two armed guards detained in, in handcuffs. And Jerry's like, dude, this is all that made it down the mountain. And I look. How many did you start off with? 30, 35. You got 25 to 28 missing? Yes, there's there's actually four people there. Jerry, a Colombian Navy SEAL, and two plainclothes CMP officers. And me. So now there's five of us. <clears throat> and I'm like... What an assault force to take they, on. They couldn't get down the mountain. The prosecutor fell. She broke her heel. She was out of commission. She didn't show up until like, you know, 45 minutes after we arrested Miguel. Um, you know, other people couldn't make it. A couple people got hurt. And... I'm like, dude, we got to wait for more people. We can't assault the 10th floor with five people. Jerry's like, dude, we got to go now. We got to go now. You know, Porteros are detained. People are going to know what's going on. They're going to hear. We got to go. And I'm looking back toward the mountain. There's nobody coming. He's like, we got to go. I'm like, screw it. Let's go. So we ran up the 10 flights of stairs. And I, I was worried taking the elevator. You know, with those marble floors, you get up to the 10th floor and it goes, ding, you know, makes that sound. So I'm like, We'll take the stairs. So we got huddled up on, uh, you know, right outside the door. Hey, Chris, did you think about taking the elevator to the ninth floor and only walking up one set no, of stairs, yeah. one flight of I stairs? <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I was in. I was in. I just tried to make life easier for you, pal. And it was it was one apartment per floor too. So I was in op mode. I didn't even. I didn't think. I was just let's just get up there as quick as we can and and, and go. And I no, I never did think of that, but probably would have been. <laughs> Probably would have been good. So we we huddle around the door. You know, we talked to Dave. There's still no people coming. So we said, well, no unilateral activity. I said, Jerry, give the hammer to the Navy SEAL. Jerry's like, what? Give him the hammer. Jerry's like, oh, man. He gives it to the Navy SEAL. He takes a couple whacks at the door. It's an armored, fortified door, right? So Jerry looks at me and just like, Screw it. He grabs the hammer. He whacks it a couple of times. The door bursts open. We spread out into this apartment. It's a huge apartment. I don't know, three, 4,000 square feet. And we just 
go in all separate directions and I end up going towards the kitchen. So uh, we turn the lights on. I see the Panasonic, the Panasonic phones with the trunking system. I open the refrigerator. I see the, uh, the food in there. I'm going towards the back. I see one of the Colombian police, national police plainclothes guy on the floor handcuffing a guy. It's Mateo, the guy that we were following around, remember, for two weeks. So he cycled back into being the assistant now. He cycled back in. The two Afro-Colombian maids uh, are there, and we start going to the back the back bath, uh, the bedroom area, and then I hear in Spanish the Navy SEAL go, I got him, I got him. Yo he. I'm like, what? Yo he. I got him, I got him. So me and Jerry, we, we make our way into the into the bedroom, and there's the Navy SEAL, you know, holding Miguel by his shirt like this, his T-shirt, and he was in boxer shorts, pulling him out of the hidden compartment. He had like one foot in. He was getting in, ready to close it. And uh, I've got some pictures I can send you and show you. It was unbelievable. We would have, we'd, I'd still be there to this day looking for him, trying to find him in that collective. We would have never, you know, me. Where was it located at? It was in the master bedroom. And, you know, Steve, you'll know when I tell you this, how the closets in Columbia on the master bedrooms, they had a lot of built-in uh, cabinets and, you know, dressers and drawers. Very ornate. Yes, very, very Baroque, very, you know, this big wood and everything. So what it was is there was like four drawers or two, like a, a shelf, right? Drawer, drawer, but four levels. So you would have to take out each drawer. So you put in you know, socks or underwear, whatever you put in there. Pull out the drawers and then go in the back and swing the, there was a door. Swing the door open, get in the coletta. So he would go in, close it, and then you would put the, the, like the shelves or whatever and the drawers back in. So when you walked in and it was closed, it was just like a perfect bedroom with, you know, pull out cabinets. So you could never tell that there was anything there. But when we were there, you could see that the door was probably six or eight inches thick with concrete, you know, and it just, like I said, closed perfectly, latched from the inside, and then everything was put back in place. And when I show you the pictures, like the before and after pictures, I can send them to you, it was incredible. It was the most incredible, like, hidden compartment I've ever seen. Wow. Ever. Wow. Well, he was using concrete this time because he wasn't going to get his ass drilled like he did last time, Dude, was that he? Was, that was, you would have needed a two-foot drill. Lesson learned. So, um, so we got him and we rested him. I told Dave, we got him. He's like, are you sure? I go, yes, I'm sure. We got him on the radio. And, um, I, you know, Miguel came out and I told him, I go, Sacabo, Senor Sacabo. Like, it's over. It's over. And uh, <clears throat> he went through... Because you've seen pictures of him and photos. He has like the nastiest look you've ever seen in your life. And he he went through three stages in, in about five to ten minutes. And the first stage was complete shock. He was obviously he was woken up out of a sound sleep. He never expected to be raided. He didn't know what was going on. He's running in the coletta. People are yelling, and he's he's trying to figure out what's going on. And that was a couple minutes. And then the next couple of minutes, he it sunk in what was happening. He was he was arrested. I was the only identifiable American there. You know, Jerry looks Colombian, dark skinned, and uh, he was just like looking around at everything with that nasty thousand yard stare. You know, and 
just that nasty look. And you could tell he was pissed off. He was like really pissed off that he was arrested. And then finally, the other five minutes, it was like he resigned himself to the fact, I guess, that it was over, that he was arrested, and he just kind of like sat back in the chair and was like watching everything. It's kind of Maslow's seven stages of grief, you know, denial and finally acceptance. Yeah. But it was it was really, I'll never forget those three stages, how they quickly they happened, but three very, very different, you know, stages. And then, of course, people started to... Um, uh, pouring into the apartment, you know, one or two or three at a time. And uh, they saw that Miguel had been arrested. Finally, the prosecutor made her way in. She was covered in dirt. She had a white jumpsuit on <laughs> with, with uh, uh, like a like a blue silk blouse. And she was covered in dirt. You know, she was completely dirty. She fell a couple times coming down the mountain. Um, Ruben finally made it in. Dave finally made it in. And... Uh, I, I always, you know, I, you know, I kind of, you guys kind of know how I'm always messing around, joking around. So Dave walks in, I go, there he is. And I'm pointing point to Mateo there. And uh, Dave looks at me, he goes, that's not him. Goes, Dave, I know it's not him. He's, he's in, he's in the other, he's in the other room. You know? So Dave was like, oh, God, so, don't screw with me. So we all, uh, at that point, we figured, you know what, now we could take some chances. So we all kind of stood behind Miguel on the couch and we took our little trophy shots, you know, the, with with uh, with Miguel in the background. Because, uh, you know, and I saw a lot of the things that you guys did, Steve, with Javier and the photos that you took. Man, the prosecutor, they wouldn't let us take photos for anything. We couldn't. It was hard for us to do it unless we snuck them. But at that point, there was no prosecutor there. The entire apartment, people were jumping up and down and screaming and yelling. They're all on the phone calling their command staff. Hey, you know, we, we arrested Miguel. And pretty much everybody knew that that was, that was really the decline of the cartel because the two main leaders were, were in prison. But, uh, but, but you're three down now, right? He was number three, right? Right. Number three. And then uh, still got Pacho. It, it didn't last. We didn't get any rest because <clears throat> we flew back to Bogota. You know, with uh, Miguel went on separately, we flew back to Bogota, we did our reports, and then the next day we were back in Cali, and now we were trying to find uh, Guillermo Palomari because now the plan was really in motion to to kill Guillermo Palomari. So uh, we told— And when you say the plan was in motion by the Cali cartel to kill Palomari, right? Right, because now the two main leaders were locked up, and it was critical that— they get he not survived. He not survived because now if he got extradited, it was it was game over. So um, we kept asking, you know, Sean Salcedo, are you, we got to get you out. He's like, no, I'm good. I, I'm okay. We got to get Palomar. We got to get Palomar. But we didn't know where Palomar was. So what we tried to do was he told us, look, Guillermo's wife works at this uh, computer store on Avenida 4. <clears throat> go in, talk to her, see what you can, you know, convince her. So the cartel had 24-7 surveillance on on the wife. Her name was Patricia and the business. So we figured that by going into that business, we were taking a, we were taking a risk. So we, we went in at night. We tried to sneak in as quick as we could. And we went in and we talked to Patricia Palmari, Guillermo's wife. And we told her, like, look, you know, my name's Chris Feistel. This is Dave Mitchell. We're, you know, from the American Embassy, and there's an advanced 
plan in place to kill your husband. She's like, no, you know, I figured as much, but I haven't seen Guillermo in, I don't know, maybe a year. Like, look, you don't understand. This is very serious matter. You got to get word to him. You got to send a message. You got whatever you got to do. Send a curry. I don't know wherever he's at. She's like, I don't know where he's at. Kind of like really nonchalant. Dave and I were looking at each other like, really? Are you kidding me? And I said, well, here's our number. Now, you're going to start putting two and two together with a lot of these stories. <clears throat> we go, here's a number. She had our pager number, but I go, here's a number that in case of an emergency, you can call. Because she wanted a number to the embassy. So we gave her Tony Seneca's number. <laughs> right? The phone that was in the office that they had tapped where he was on the... Remember? Uh-huh. So how do we get to that point? We'll get there in a minute. So um, we leave and Dave and I were like, dude, that was like the most surreal conversation we ever had. She's like very super nonchalant. So the next day she calls the, through my pager, the Sky pager, and Dave, me and Dave talked to her. And she's like, so if Guillermo was going to surrender what kind of times he looking at what kind of life are we going to have there where are we going to live you know a lot of these questions that i you know i really couldn't answer well and your question back to her is i thought you hadn't talked to him in a year well she didn't say that she talked to him she just said hey i'm exploring i haven't seen him in a year i'm exploring okay. you know so i said she goes i want to talk to she's like I, she didn't say it but i could tell by her thing she's like you guys are like you guys are like nobodies. I, I want to talk to somebody like in charge at the embassy. She didn't say it like that, but she's like, can I talk to somebody of rank? And I'm like, okay. So she flies to Bogota and she meets with Tony Seneca. And I think Jerry Reinhardt was there too. And the same thing. So there's all these calls going back and forth to Washington on the secure phone that if Paul Amari surrenders, what kind of time, blah, blah, blah. So, we, we give her. I got to ask you at this point, though. Are you sure? Are you sure the phone's secure at this point? Well, they were on the secure <laughs> phone with the key turn, so well, that was secure. Yeah, on the stew phones or Steve phones. Yeah, they used to be called the secure telephone unit or the secure uh, telephone equipment or encryption. You used to have to put the card in there to initiate the encrypted uh, yeah. conversation. Yeah, yeah, and you got to do it on both ends. So we finally get. Uh, he's looking at like zero to eight years in Miami based on the RICO indictment. But if he cooperates, you know, they can go down. Oh, which is rule 35, if, if I remember correctly there, Chris. Hey, right. see, he Very is good. trainable, Chris. Very good. Yeah, I'm good. surprised he remembered that. I didn't know if you were up on that kind of stuff, but I thought I'd help you out a little Very, bit. very impressive. Um, <laughs> and then that they would go into the witness protection program and, you know, so on and so forth. So she appears to be somewhat satisfied with the responses and... She leaves. She goes back to to uh, Kali from Bogota, and she says, "I'll try to get a message to Guillermo. I don't know how long it's going to take, but you know, the whole nine yards." <clears throat> so later that day, I get a phone call, or I get a pay up uh, page on my text um, um, page on my pager, and I look at it. Let me call a number. It's Guillermo Palmar. He's like, "Okay, I'm ready to surrender. Come pick me up." I'm like, no shit, that's the easiest arrest you've made in this whole operation. But but here's the thing, though. What we didn't talk about was is that the assassins were, uh, they had, 
there was one particular assassin who was assigned to the case. His name was Cesar Yusti. And that he had been slowly closing in on Guillermo Palomari's location. And they were able to identify the building that Palomari's was staying at. So um, Salcedo told us, look, Yusti's identified the building. We got we to gotta slow him down. <clears throat> so Dave and I went back to the, the military bloke, we called in a couple of favors, and we're like, hey, we got some good intel. We can't tell you where it is. Can you put roadblocks in this area for the next couple of days, like military checkpoints? And then, you know, our contact, he kind of hemmed and hawed, but he did it. He did it as a favor to us. So that kind of cordoned off that area because, listen to their plan. UST was going to go in there with uh, other Sicarios, other assassins, with uh, Fiscal, prosecutor, real prosecutor um, vests and an arrest warrant. And they were going to say that they were there to arrest them. And then once they got them out, they were going to, uh, they were going to kill them. So that was the plan. So we figured by putting roadblocks in there, it would deter them from, from doing it. So we bought a little bit of time. So we told Patricia that that had got back to Guillermo. So he knew like, hey, they know the building where I'm staying at. All they were waiting for, check this out, is they had tapped the phones in every apartment in that building. And they were waiting for Guillermo to get on the phone. Guillermo Palmar to get on the phone. They could identify his voice. They knew he was there. And then they were going to go in. Jeez. So when we told him that, he was like, game's up. So he's like, okay, come pick me up. Our plane was in Barranquilla, right? So it's like, I can't, I, we can't get there until 10 o'clock at night. We, I mean, we need a couple of hours. So he agrees to meet us at this kind of rem, pseudo remote location in Southern Cali at, uh, we get there about 1045. <clears throat> Dave and myself are in one car. We get Guillermo Palmari in the back of the, of our car. Jerry and another agent are in another car. They're driving about a mile in front of us, just making sure there's no roadblocks or anything. And we go to the airport uh, to get them out. So listen to our extraction plan, Steve. You'll, you should appreciate this one. So before we put this plan into motion, Tony, Tony Seneca calls us in and he says, okay, what is your plan to extract Caramel Palomari from Cali? And I said, well, it's, it's actually pretty, pretty easy. I look at Dave and I go, it's a pretty simple plan. Uh, we're going to fly into the uh, international airport, get off our plane. We're going to walk through the back gate. There's police that go. It's, there's, it's not even a secured airport. There's like a fence and there's a big opening in the fence, but they have police that stand around there. <clears throat> I go, I'm going to walk by the police, tell them that we have a sick friend and that we're going to get him. And we're going to be back in like an hour, an hour and a half. And we're going to take him back to Bogota because he's really sick. So Seneca goes, so let me get this straight. You are going to get Palomari, drive him to the airport, and then walk him, the most wanted man in Colombia right now, <laughs> right by police, onto the aircraft and fly him to Bogota. And I said, yeah, that's my plan. And he's like, I go, look, it's so simple, it will work. Trust me. It's, it's so audacious. It's dark. The cops aren't going to see, you know, Palomari's face. There's there's four of us, right? So we put him in the middle. We'll walk by. 
and his cover, and this is where I say you would find it interesting. Remember Tommy Johnson? Oh, yeah. I got Tommy Johnson's carnet, his red carnet. And because uh, like at a quick glance, he he looks like Guillermo Palomar. Palomar is dark skin? Kind of dark skin, had that little cheesy mustache, kind of had the same hair, and he yeah. had big glasses. So I said at a quick glance, he can pass for Tommy Johnson. So, uh, and, and and I told Seneca, they, they go, and if, if challenged, we'll present the carnets. And, excuse me, and this is what we do. I said, I flown, me and Dave of Steria have flown in and out of that airport in Cali oh, a thousand times. No one ever stops us. The cops know us there. They see us. We walk by him all the time. We're going to tell him that. They're going to go, okay, yeah, see you later. You know, we bought him some Cokes. We gave him, hey, we'll be back in an hour. They go, it's simple. It's so simple. It's, it'll, it'll work. And then Seneca goes, and that's your plan. To this guy's the most wanted man in Columbia is Tommy Johnson. <laughs> that's the plan if it gets to it. Yeah. So, Were you expecting something with Tom Cruise and rappelling out of an aircraft <laughs> or what? I mean, how complicated does this have to be? So we, we pick him up. You know, Jerry's in the lead car. We're driving ahead. No roadblocks, no cartel assassins, no Cesar Eusti. We get to the airport. We park the cars. We kind of get in our formation. You know, Dave and me, Dave and myself on one side, Jerry, and I think Miguel Villafranca was with us too on the other side. And and uh, Tommy's in the middle. And I go, I go lead the way to the cops. Hey, this is our sick friend. We got him. Say, okay, thanks. See you later. We walk him right onto the plane and we fly to Bogota. Put him in a safe house. Went like clockwork. It was the easiest thing we actually did in Cali, the operation. So, so, um, and thus endeth the Cali cartel. Well, no, it gets worse. It goes downhill from there. So, <laughs> story's not over yet. Just when you no. thought that you're going to get a break. No. So, the plan is so we get uh, Palmar, we get back to Bogota like midnight. We put him in a safe house. And the plan is that Palomari's wife, Patricia, and their two kids are going to fly to Bogota the next morning. And we're going to pick them up at the airport, take them to the safe house, and everybody's together and everybody gets extracted at once. So we go to the airport. We were waiting uh, for the flight to come in. And Dave and I see Patricia. And she's with this other guy called, uh, his name is Freddy Vivas Yangus, who was a friend. And we're sitting there. I said, Patricia, where are the children? She says, I didn't bring them. Why not? Well, because there's some other stuff I have to do in Cali. I go, but me and Dave, we look at each other like, there's nothing you need to do in Cali. You need to get your kids, be here, and surrender. If you go back to Cali, you're going to be killed. I mean, these guys are going to, these Cali Cartel isn't stupid. They're going to figure out what you're doing. Well, I have money in the bank and I have furniture I have to sell. I go, look, the furniture is not worth your life. Leave it. You need to, you, better yet, you stay here with Freddie. Send somebody to bring the kids. Nope, I have to go back. I have to, I have to, so this went on for an hour. So finally she says, I have to get back to Cali. I have to get this stuff started. I said, look, please, whatever you do, do not go. You're going to be killed. No, I'll be okay. They don't know where I live. I go, they're following you. They know where you live. Trust me. So anyway. They just got through tapping every phone where your husband was hiding looking for him. 
they were surveilling her business. They knew they knew where she was at. I mean, they just didn't want to do anything at that point. They were, you know, they were waiting for the right time. And you know what? Now was the right time. So she flies back to Cali with Freddie. And of course, she gets grabbed. They kidnap her. They torture her. They put the bag over her head. And, you know, it goes downhill from there. I don't want to get into the details in case, you know, Paul Mari or his kids are ever listening. But it wasn't pretty. So she ends up being tortured and killed along with Freddie Vivas Yangus. And what we find out later uh, from Salcedo is that while, while she was being interrogated, for lack of a better word, she gave up the phone number that Dave and I had given her and our names. And that's how they were able to get the phone number to tap Tony Seneca's phone because they got it through from her. You, you offered her the world and she just, she was too, I don't even know what word to use. What was at the real core of it? Why was, did she, was she just so disconnected from reality that she really thought she was okay? Or was there something else going on under the surface you guys didn't see? Uh, as best we can determine, it was, she wanted to, you know, they didn't have a whole lot of money. I mean, they were comfortable, they had money, but she wanted to take as much money with her as she could. She didn't want to abandon their house, abandon the furniture, <coughs> excuse me, abandon uh, their bank accounts and whatever. She just wanted to, I guess, salvage as much as she could before, you know, before they left. So that trip back to Cali is what got her killed. I'm surprised they didn't kill the kids too. I got to backtrack. I made a mistake on that. So when she flew to Cali, I mean, when she flew to Bogota with Freddie, she brought the kids with her. She dropped off the kids. We took the kids, took them back to the safe house with Palmari. And then Guillermo was like, where's my wife? I said, she went back to Cali. And he went, he went crazy. He went, because he, he knew. I mean, he, we all knew. Yeah. He went ballistic. So we at least brought the kids uh, uh, from the airport back to the safe house. They stayed there with Guillermo. She went back with Freddie. And then that's, that's what happened. How, when did you find out about it? And how did you find out about it? We found out about exactly how she was killed later on from Salcedo through one of his security assistants, like his main man, guy by the name of uh, Enrique Sanchez. And uh, Enrique Sanchez is portrayed in, in Narco Season 3 as the, remember the big, tall, Afro-Colombian actor who was Salcedo's assistant. That is really, that's Enrique. That was Enrique Sanchez. So he was the one who relate to Salcedo who told us, but um, <clears throat> we actually tried to get to um, Enrique later on to get him to the States as a witness. And they, they ended up killing him before we can get to him. So now we have, so we've, we've got the leaders. Well, Pacho. So you got Hilberto, uh, Hilberto in June down. Chepe July 4th down. Miguel in August down. So then we turn everything. So then we have to go back. Now that we got those three gone, Palomari back in Bogota, now we have to work on getting Guillermo Palomari out of the country, trying to get Salcedo back to Bogota and out of the country, and then trying to go after Pacho. So we've got multiple balls in the air at one time. Um, trying to get Guillermo Palomari out of the country was a disaster. Um, he was wanted in Colombia. And 
uh, for, you know, a variety of different charges by the Colombian government. So we could not technically get him out of the country because he was wanted. You know, it was a violation of, of Colombian law. So uh, we had to get permission from from the U.S. government, went all the way up. I, I understood it took a presidential finding to be able to black bag him out of the country. So we were finally able to extract um, Guillermo Palomari out. And then we were able to eventually get Salcedo out, you know, through the end of August. And then everything turned to trying to find Pacho. So for the next year, we were basically, you know, hitting four and five different places a day, 10 different places a day trying to find Pacho. But we never really had any good information on Pacho. He was like a ghost. I mean, I, I don't know if we were ever really close to, to capturing him. So um, we continued operations. We did a couple good ones, but we still weren't able to get him. We couple approached his pilot one time, and uh, but nothing ever materialized. And then finally, we were at the the uh, police base in September of 1996. I was out checking some addresses and doing some surveillance. Dave was at the police base, and Pacho Herrera walked into the the finca at the police base and turned himself in. On September 1st, 1996. Wow. And now what? You're over two and a half years into tracking all of these guys down now, right? right? Yep. So so Dave was there. I talked to him briefly. Got a little... little oh, come on. You had to shit your pants when he just... It's like... <laughs> you're ch it's like chasing the ghost. Why would the ghost turn himself in? What what led to him saying... Enough's enough. That's it. Was it the, did the pressure get to him? Was he concerned about being killed? Or did he just say, nah, I've had enough? I think he struck a deal. He had negotiated, and I, I don't know this for sure, but I think he had under the table negotiated some kind of sweet deal with the government where he surrendered and we got limited time. Um, he turned himself in. Dave got a nice little photo with him. And, uh, you know, he called me and he's like, you'll never guess what happened. I'm like, what? I don't What happened? You got some good food at the base? What? What happened? He goes, <laughs> Pacho just turned himself in. Like, what? Come on, Dave, stop. He goes, no, he's here at the yeah. He just turned himself in. I was like, wow. So went back. Wow. Uh, so he turned himself in. He got sentenced initially, I think, to like seven years, something like crazy. And then he did two years in prison. And then in November, two years later, he was he was shot and killed in prison while he was playing soccer. Do you know by who? Yeah, it was right. You know, the North Valley Cartel, which started the whole big war. And then, you know, the North Valley Cartel pretty much exterminated that entire Herrera family. I mean. They killed Pacho. That was Rascuño. Yeah, well, I mean, Rascuño, Orlando Hanau, um, Arcano yeah. Hanau, Varela, you know, Rascuño, all those guys. So, um, yeah, they Pacho was killed. His brother Alvaro was killed. William was killed. Manuel, I think, was killed. The entire Herrera family was basically exterminated by the North Valley Cartel. Wow. So that's that's a way to put a, a you know stake in the end of it. Right. So, I mean, that, that with, but when did the Cali cartel actually get blown up? I mean, by you guys, was it, was it the third arrest or was it Pacho turning himself in? What, when, when was the actual, you think really effective end of the Cali cartel? Well, in my opinion, that effective end was when Miguel got arrested because, you know, that was when the North Valley saw that the king was weak, right? That the throne was available. Yeah. You know, Miguel was gone. Hilberto was gone. That the, the leadership was was a vacuum at that point. 
and Miguel's son had stepped in, William Rodriguez, to try to take over the cartel. Um, I mean, he did as best he could, but he, you know, he didn't have the the wherewithal like Miguel to run an organization of that size. And uh, they saw North Valley saw that the king was weak, and they they made a move. And the first move was they tried to assassinate William Rodriguez. And you know, it was a day. It was in in 1996. Dave and I were in Cali, and we heard the news. You know, they just shot William Rodriguez at a Brazilian restaurant. You know, and killed four of his bodyguards. And uh, that was kind of like that first that first blow uh, in the war. And then, uh, you know, we Dave and I ran into William a few months later at a restaurant, and uh, we went up and talked to him, and you know, asked him how he was doing and everything, and how his medical treatment was going, and um, you know, he was managing as best he could. He was shot eight times, and then uh, you know, the North Valley just saw a weakness, and they they kind of exploited it. So I would say that the real decline started after Miguel's arrest, but. You know, after Pacho, it was like it was done. done. They were they were done. But so, well, well, now where are Gilberto Miguel and Chepi Santa Cruz? So Pacho's killed in September of '96. Santa Cruz Chepi gets arrested July the fourth, nineteen ninety-five. He's in jail until January of nineteen ninety-six. Decides he doesn't like it anymore and doesn't want to stay there. So he basically walks out of the prison. He puts on a, you know, a sport coat and gets cleaned up and disguises himself as one of his defense teams, and he walks right out of prison. So Santa Cruz escapes, and now the hunt is back on for him. So Chepe makes the mistake of going over to Medellin, and he's starting to form an alliance with the FARC, and you know the paramilitaries, AUC, finds out about it, Carlos Castaño and Danilo Gonzalez and a bunch of those guys, and and uh, they end up, you know, killing Chepi Santa Cruz in March of 1996. And, uh, you know, the, the police, I mean, I remember going over to, you know, Serrano's office and we're looking at all the photos and they're explaining to us how the shootout and how it happened with Chepe and looking at all the photos and like, he's got like bruise marks on his hands where he was handcuffed. He's got big bruise on his back and there's bullets in the cars, but the, none of it added up, right? So we didn't buy the that the police had killed him in a shootout. And we later found out the real story, the you know of what happened. So uh, <clears throat> so he's dead, Pacho's dead, and Miguel and Hilberto, Hilberto finally there's they continue to try to run their organization from prison. And fortunately for us, uh, the Colombian government passes. The extradition law, which basically says that any crimes committed after December 17th, 1997, you are eligible for extradition to the United States. So Alberto and Miguel continue to run their operations from prison. New charges are put on them um, in the United States, and they are eventually extradited uh, during my third tour there. Um, Gilberto gets extradited in December of 2004, and Miguel gets extradited in March of 2005. They go to the U.S. They plead guilty in 2006 for to the indictment, which says that they imported over 200,000 kilos of cocaine and a forfeiture clause for 2.1 billion with a B dollars. 
So sounds like personal wow. use to me. I mean, really, it, it's trafficking. So they plead guilty <laughs> to that, and then that whole. In the meantime, we're in Colombia, and the U.S. government, you know, they with the the OFAC comes in, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, and they pass, you know, the, the President Clinton signs the executive order one two nine seven eight or whatever it is. You know, allowing for these SDNTs, these specially designated narcotic traffickers, that we can go after their proceeds, that we can seize their businesses, we can seize their properties, we can freeze their accounts. And anybody who does business with them in the U.S., they can, you know, it puts a stranglehold basically on them. So the Colombian government, we basically start doing asset forfeiture and seizing all their properties. And if you look at the numbers, are staggering. Like Pacho Herrera, we seized over 1,600 properties, Gosh. Six, just from him alone, businesses, ranches, warehouses, uh, wow. you know, apartments, commercial, real estate, whatever, 1,600. Chepi Santa Cruz was seized over 1,000 properties, and it was rumored that he had over 2,000. Wow. You know, the Rodriguez's, we seized their chain of drugstores, which was valued at like two, $300 million. So... You can see the amount of assets and properties that these guys had. It was it was staggering. You know, and that's the sad thing about the Rodriguez or Weather Bros. They had a successful chain of drugstores and could have been multi, multi, multi-millionaires, but that wasn't enough. They needed more money. Well, that, that was when I was down in Bogota on uh, Plan Columbia. That was part of the law, I think, that was passed, right, Chris, is that any of these seized assets needed to go back to benefit the country. I mean, they were looking at malls. They were looking at planes. Anything that was seized and sold was supposed to be reinvested back in the country. And when you think about just what a handful of people had, just from a wealth standpoint, I mean, they, they could fund education, you know, for ha- probably half the school children in Columbia. Yeah, it was, it was staggering the amount of property that they owned. And that was their way of quickly laundering that money, getting it back into the economy. And that's why Columbia was booming at that time. And, you know, you the well, it's the narco money that was circulating right back. You know, $1 here trickles down, $5 come out That's later. That's right. And then in the, in the late 80s, it was estimated the Cali cartel was responsible for 40% of the economic development that was going on in Cali. So they were building everything. They were building houses. They were building apartments. They were building roads and bridges and hospitals and you ho- name it. Hotels, you, you name it. I mean, they owned, they owned banks. They owned their own soccer team, America. They owned... Uh, the Inter-American Bank in Panama that they laundered money with the, the Medellin cartel through. They, these guys on their radio stations, hotels, I mean, everything. So uh, it was a staggering amount of money that they had at their disposal. Well, man, I mean, this is obviously, we, this, this kind of ties back into when you talked about how the way you learned Spanish was by memorizing. Folks can't see this, but Murph and I can. Chris has been talking now. We're going on three hours and 57 minutes. I mean, a little break in between. No notes. All of this stuff from memory, you know, and you think you think about the, the cases and the material. So let's 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 take now and talk about the intersection you and Steve have, because you, didn't you actually tell the CIA guy, too, that, hey, if you're not going to come out and be our third gun, you don't get to be in the movie when this is turned into a series? I, well, that, <laughs> You're paraphrasing a little and bit. Little did he know. I told him, I said, I go, hey, Mike, everybody's going to know that you were the guy who said no, that didn't want to come out. You were the one who didn't yep. go. Yeah. Yep. Well, and come to find out, you, I mean, your character, you, Chris, are the main character in season three of Narcos, because there's Narcos in Narcos Mexico, but Narcos. 
So tell us about how that came about. I mean, because uh, Murph was actually jealous of your success because you were the actor they got to play you was much better looking than Boyd Holbrook, you know, to play Steve. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. So no. How, did the, how did it come about? How did you get hooked up with Murph and uh, JP, you know, in doing season three? So I, I think, I mean, how I got involved initially was, as I think the next logical step for Netflix doing Narcos was to progress into Cali and they asked Javier and Steve, you know, hey, who would be some good people to talk to about Cali that that were there and, you know, participated in that. And and I know, you know, Steve and Murph offered uh, up my name uh, because I was retired at the time. And uh, so that's how I think they initially Netflix got on to me. And then, I mean, I'll digress a little bit. They, they were uh, Eric and those guys, Eric Newman, very well prepared they knew their stuff so they did their research and there was a i did a uh well there was a book out let me start with that called at the devil's table written by william rempel which is basically the story of jorge salcedo and his life in the cartel and and um eventually as part of the story dave and myself crossed paths with salcedo as we just talked about and help bring down Miguel and get Paul Mari and bring down the rest of the cartel. So they had read that book, which on a side note was extremely, yes, extremely well-written by William Rempel. And the folks can't see this. That's, I, I, I think I got this from you, didn't I, Murph? It's actually a very good read. The book? Yeah. So at the devil's table, William C. Rempel. I mean, it just, the man who took down the world's biggest crime syndicate. It's 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 hard to put down when you read it. Freaking great stuff. Yeah, it's very exceptionally well-written and, and, and sourced. And, so they had read that. They had talked to uh, Murph and, and, and JP. And there was also uh, the first time I got to see Salcedo after, you know, we extracted him from Columbia in 95. I did a uh, an NPR radio interview called This American Life. And it's on the Internet now. It's called Living in Plain Sight, I think is the title of it. And it talks about um, um, Salcedo and we talk about what we did in Cali. And that was probably done in, man, I, I got to say maybe 2009, something like that. So it was from 95. So probably 14 or 15 years later, I got to hook up with Salcedo and, and do that uh, radio interview, This American Life. And it's you can find it on the Internet now. And then uh, Eric Newman and uh, the Narcos guys got a hold of that. And they went through that. So based upon that, they... Uh, I think Murph, I think he passed him my number, or JP did, and then uh, we, we we hooked up and we talked about Cali and and uh, the direction that they wanted to go and and uh, the rest is history. So they you know, so they say and uh, they based a lot of it out of the book at the Devil's Table. So what did you think of the portrayal though? Because I know one of the when we did our pre-call, one of the things you said is that they kind of compressed it. I mean, they t- they took two and a half years, two out you know two years and nine months, and compressed it into six months, but. Did they stay, you know, that was Steve and you, Steve, you talked about this too. Your big uh, issue when you were talking to all of these producers is everybody wanted to glorify Pablo. And Eric was one of the few people, actually the only person who came along and said, hey, you know, we'll portray him correctly. Um, you know, so did you have any reservations about it, Chris? Did, did you think, you know, because they'd already worked with Murph and JP that they were going to do this right? I mean, what did you think about the depiction? Uh, well, in talking to, to JP and Murph uh, ahead of time, you know, they they vouched for those guys and they told me that they would do, you know, do the right thing. And I, and I took them at their word and, and of course they did. Um, but, uh, no, I wasn't really worried on how they were going to portray him. Um, 
you know, they had, you know, there's always liberties that go into this and they can, you know, portray things in a certain way. But uh, their guideline uh, for their guideline for the show, I think, was Bill's book, which was written. So they didn't want to deviate from that too, too much. Now, there's obviously things that, that Bill didn't know when he wrote the book, uh, you know, certain sources and events that happened that weren't related to Salcedo because it's more about his life. But no, I didn't have any reservation about that. And and like I said, the I always envisioned a story about the Cali cartel starting off and going in chronological order from the early 70s when they started going all the way through. So in my mind, I had that preconceived notion that that's how the Narcos, the Netflix series was going to go. And, uh, and I thought initially that there's, there's more than, as you know, there's, there's a ton of stuff that we didn't even talk about. You could have definitely made two seasons out of that. So in my mind, that's how I thought it was going to go. And then when I watched it, I saw how they, you know, it started where they're going to surrender or they only have six months before they're going to abandon drug trafficking. And I thought, Oh my God, what about all this really cool stuff that happened prior to that? How are they going to get that in? And, you know, uh, so that was my one thought. And I understand completely why they did it for time-wise and suspense-wise, too, when you funnel everything down into that. So um, if if I have one criticism, I, that was that was it. I would have liked to have seen more of a chronological history of, of Cali and their rise and, and all that. But I, I, I understand why they did it. Well, they don't need to watch Netflix. All they got to do is listen to this podcast because you have told the story you know, during this time. I mean, this is where, this is why this works so well. This is the real story. And you got somebody named David Michael Stahl, I believe, right? To play you, Michael David Stahl. Yeah. I changed his name for, to protect his identity just in case it was a bad acting job. Yeah. What did you, what did you think of him when you looked at him? What did you think of uh, how he portrayed you? And of course you had to be comparing it to why couldn't they get a Pedro Pascal, you know, or somebody like that to play me? Cause I'm a heavyweight. Yeah. No, I thought Michael did a great job. Uh, he he was very conscientious in, in his approach to the story. I mean, he came out here, spent several days with me. We went over a bunch of stuff and incidents and, you know, what happened, how it happened, how we dressed, what we drove, things like that. Uh, we did a little bit of raid training with him when I was in Columbia, you know, how to clear rooms. And so he was very, you know, eager to learn. Uh, I thought he did a very good job. The only thing that the guy that they got to play, Dave Mitchell, my partner, uh, Matt Whalen, he's he's a tall six six. I mean, he is a big guy, and when he stands next to Michael, Michael's not short, but he he just looks tiny compared to to Matt, you know. So, uh, but no, I mean they were they were both good. Everybody was great, you know, with the, from Netflix to the actors to to everything. So it was a really enjoyable experience. And, um, and they filmed it down in Cali too. I mean, a, a lot of the same places, that was one of the things that made it authentic, right? As you, you actually could see some of the places you had actually been. Now, did they take you out to the real cane field? Did you go to the real place where you had that meeting? We went to the real cane field, not the exact location, but we were in the, in the cane field at Seattle. Yes. We went to that actual location. Some of the apartments that they filmed in were actually, uh, property seized from the Cali cartel. So, um, in the, the one scene, which is depicted, it's the Santa Rita raid where we're actually, where were they sledgehammering the wall? That was an actual, uh, property owned by, by the Cali cartel. So yeah, they filmed in, in, in the actual properties. So 
looking back on it, when you think of that scene at the cane field, did you go back and say, still, what the fuck was I thinking? That's exactly. I, 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 every once in a while, I, even till this point, I look back, I go, what the fuck was I thinking? That was crazy. And, and when we were there, you know, before, excuse me, before Salcedo showed up, you know, Dave and I looked at each other like, dude, what are we doing here? This is fucked up. Why? We, we should not, we should not be here. We're completely out of bounds. And, you know, but uh, there's there's lots of times when you're thinking, I'm the only DEA guy in the whole world sitting here right <laughs> now. What the yeah. heck's going on? Well, you look back and it's like, what I is wrong with me? Stuff today that I did back then. But uh, so, did you email your CIA buddy and go, "Nanny, nanny, boo, boo"? There's a Netflix series and you're not in it. <laughs> no, but uh, Dave talks to him still to this day. Every once in a while, he still gives him shit about that. But oh, that's uh, good. Just to backtrack on the. Uh, on the Netflix thing, compressing everything into that, uh, into that, uh, six months before. So, like I said, I had always envisioned a whole chronological thing. So I, I wrote my own screenplay based on the, uh, the whole Cali story from my eyes, like through my eyes and my interaction with Salcedo. What's the name of it? It's called bringing down the cartel. And, um, you know, look, we're very, Steve and I have, you know, we had Lou Velozzi on. He didn't have anybody talking to him until we talked with him. And now he's, you know, as popular as, you know, the, the, the you know, the, the pretty girl at the prom. So uh, what can we help talk to about? Tell us about this screenplay. Have you gotten any bites on it? Is anybody looking at it? Uh, do you need us to open some doors and make some calls to people we know, you know? Well, any help would be appreciated. <laughs> I mean, you guys are the big wigs, uh, the heavyweights. But uh, no, but I always, you know, it, it was it was something even before Netflix came out, I was always thinking, like, you know what, maybe you should write a book. And then Bill wrote the book. It's like, oh, well, I can't do that. So, you know, maybe, maybe you write a screenplay. But then I was like, I don't know how to write a screenplay. I don't know anything about that. So you could write one called I Almost Captured Pablo. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I got there just three months too late, six months too late. Yeah. Um, but you know, it was, you know, Narcos is a 10 episode, you know, eight and a half hour thing that covers a lot of different stuff. So I, I figured, you know what, let me just, I had my, I had knee surgery. So I was sitting around doing nothing. And I said, you know what, screw it. I'm just going to sit down and write, start writing this. So I wrote it and it, it, it comes out to a two hour screenplay. And like I said, it's more through, you know, my eyes and me getting to Columbia and working with Dave and Jerry and Ruben on, I'm bringing down the cartel and mainly focused on our interaction with Salcedo and, and the corruption and the violence that went on. So it's, it's a lot more focused and, and fast paced and it doesn't get into all, a lot of the other side stuff that is in, uh, in Netflix. I think, you know, I just, I did it more as, as just to get something down on paper and, you know, I've submitted it to a couple of screenplay contests and it, 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 one one and it got second and another it's been a finalist and a lot of other ones but you know the, the story is there the story is good um i'm not obviously a seasoned screenplay writer so i'm sure it could use a little bit of work here and there but uh it's a good story and it would be nice to see it on the big screen in a two-hour block and so nobody's purchased the rights to it right <clears throat> no not yet so all you producers out there so who are you going to get to play you this time Murph, are you going to have Murph come in and play you? In the yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. I'm not tall enough, and I don't have enough hair. He's he's a little he's a little too old. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> oh, that's true. That's true. Remember, we're going back, you know, thirty years. 
26 yeah. years ago. So, yeah. I mean, I was. You so, know, who would you get to play you if you could? Who, 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 who is the person you think would do the best job in this role? Who would do me? Uh, I had a couple. Oh, of people I don't know who say, would do you. I'm just say. saying who would play you. Um, <laughs> the uh, uh, Charlie Hunman, the Sons of Anarchy. You ever seen him? Yeah, I think I, I think his name is Hunman, Charlie Hunman, uh, Sons of Anarchy. He's really good. And then. Um, who else was the other guy I was thinking of? Well, you know, Brad Cooper played Jeff Moore in The Mule, man. You you could get some star power yeah, like that. Yeah, I mean, it, that's the thing, though. You got to get, <clears throat> you know, I don't know as far as 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 casting and stuff would go, but uh, you'd have to get someone in that age with, you know, 30 to 35 age group um, who, I can't, I got a mental blank now. Who's, uh, who, you know, what's the, and I'm not saying this, he would play me. I'm thinking of his brother. The uh, Thor. What's Thor's last name? Crims, Chris Hemsworth. Hemsworth. Liam Hemsworth, his brother. Yeah, I thought it would be uh, it would be good. And for um, so well, he definitely would have the surfer dude look like you do. <laughs> yeah, just a, kind of a laid back, you know, it's big. Guy. But he's Australian, though. You know, him and him and Chris, they're, they're Australian, but they could. They, oh, they, they have they would this accent. Yeah, the Liam accent. speaks yeah. with no accent. He's, yeah, you know, he'd be fine. You know, the, the actress that played Connie in uh, the first two seasons, Joanna Christie, she's British. She hit her yeah. accent and, you know, came across as a, as a country girl. Yeah, those guys are experts at that, hiding their yeah. accent. And then you hear them in real life and you're like, oh, really? You got that British accent? Yeah. And then um, for, yeah, you got me too, you got me in a mental blank now. The, uh, the guy who would play Salcedo, always my first choice was, um, oh, I can't think of his name. He's, uh, he's a Venezuelan actor. He was in uh, small roles in like the Born Identity. He was in Zero Dark Thirty. Oh, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, because um, I've watched all the Born Identity ones too. I, I know who you're talking. Was he one of the assassins? Yeah, yeah, in yeah. The Born. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. And then he was in. He was in the New Point Break. He's the main guy, Bodie, in the New Point Break. Um, and I know his name too, and I can't think of it. Um, well, we'll edit it in later and make you seem really smart that it was just <laughs> on the tip of your tongue. So. <laughs> Hold on, let me. I could, I could, let me. I could probably find it real quick. Um, uh, shit, and then we can go back. Well, while while he's doing that, let us. You know, we're kind of. Uh, so while he while Chris is figuring out the name, who's going to play um, Salcedo? I got to tell you, I mean, we are like I said, four hours and twelve minutes into this. Edit out some stuff. I mean, this is definitely Steve going to be a two parter. Yep, yep. You know, two hours. And I'm telling you again, like with you and Javier, this is detail. I've watched Narcos. I mean. Season one, two, three, I've watched Narcos Mexico. This is detail you don't get by just watching a movie, Chris. I got to tell you, so did you come up with a name? We stalled for time. Yeah, so the guy that I always wanted to play Jorge Salcedo in the movie was Edgar Ramirez. Okay. Edgar is, he talks just like Salcedo. He's like that, that mild mannered, not raising his voice in a very steady tone. He kind of looks like Salcedo did. You know, and he speaks. You got to have somebody to be able to speak English and Spanish, which which Edgar can do. So, he was always my first choice that would play Salcedo. And uh, another one would be, you know, he's a great actor, Javier Bardem. I mean, he would be, you know, phenomenal to be able to play uh, Jorge Salcedo. Well, see, we got your problem solved. We got casting done. You know, location <laughs> is going to be very easy. You've been there before. What's our cut of this? Do we get ten percent? I forgot. What's a commissioning yeah. agent get? Steve, we get ten percent, right? Probably as about agents, the same. The we? same that we got from the first time, the big goose egg. Yeah. <laughs> oh God! Oh God! 
Now, now, I, now I need a producer with a with a you know an eighty million dollar budget. There too. you go. Look now, you're talking, now, and you want that executive producer status for yourself. There you go. Yeah, you want the EP status. Yeah, you get the little extra money that way. Well, hey, Chris, man, dude, we we have kept you. And look, you are a champ because I could tell with your voice and stuff. Yeah, because yeah. you're out in Arizona where it's dry, and it's a dry heat. But man, you are. <laughs> we had you struggling there towards the end. So I got to tell you, <laughs> the, 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 for, I thought you were going to cough up a hairball. I thought we were going to have to call for help. You come rescue me, your ass. Deprive me of food. You deprive me of water. <laughs> I mean, it's like walking through the desert here. You know? you know, but this was this is one of the better episodes we've had because of the detail. I mean, it's it doesn't seem yeah. like we've been sitting here for four hours. This is the first time, other you, than reading that book at the Devil's Table, it's the most detail I've ever heard about what you guys did down there. It's phenomenal. And Chris, you're just like a wind-up toy. We just give you a topic, and just the way you go through the detail and progress, and you remember names. This is what adds credibility and authenticity. You remember names. And look, hell, I, I have a hard time remembering what I ate yesterday. You know, and here you are spouting off stuff. So I, I guess I tend to believe you that the way you memorize stuff worked for you. But I was at first I was going, oh, yeah, sure. But yeah, you are that <laughs> motherfucker in college that everybody was pissed at. You'd walk in on the last day, ace the test, never be in class the entire time. And you time. killed the curve for everybody else. That's what happened. That's right. <laughs> Oh, it's been great, you know, Chris. It, it's been yeah, it's been a lot of fun talking to you guys. It brings back a lot of memories, and mm -hmm. and there's still there's just so much stuff that we didn't even get into. Different events that happened, and well, look, there are always bonus episodes. There's stuff we can, and the other thing too is we really should um, get us the pictures. We're gonna for the folks listening, we're gonna get those up on the web page. We'll we'll put we'll put up anything you want to send us, you know, to tell the story. And I think Steve, you know what this may be? This may be one of those special Facebook lives we do, like we did with Dave Riker. So we just oh, got yeah. through doing. Uh, we've got a, a page with fifty two thousand followers on it, and we did uh, a episode with Dave Reichert, who investigated the Green River Killer. Mm -hmm. And that was just phenomenal. I mean, we had lots of uh, people attending, lots of good interaction. So I think we, I, I just nominated, uh, Chris, do I have a second, Steve? Uh, approved. Approved, I'm on right? board. It's a two to nothing. So you got to be on, Chris. We're going to deprive <laughs> you of, but we'll do it a little bit later in the evening and let you get your blood sugar, you know, back up there. Yeah, thanks. That would be nice. If people would want to reach out to you, if, if people would want to contact you about your, your script there, your screenplay, um, is there a way they can contact you? You want them to contact us and then we'll get a hold of you? I mean, I've got a LinkedIn page. and uh, Do you have a website? Do not have a website. I, I can't afford a website like Steve and JP have. So. Oh, please, man. There's some free stuff. I'll hook you up. We'll, we'll talk about this. It's We're who gonna, you know, you gotta, brother. If, Let me tell you. It's who you you got to get out there and get yourself known. All right. We'll talk to you about how to do that. <laughs> hey, well, look, if anybody's interested... Get a hold of us. Murph has got, we both have direct connections back to Chris, but definitely Murph. Get a hold of Murph. You can get a hold of him at deanarcos.com. By the way, where he has a book uh, as well, too. So yeah, there you go. Was, Cheesy advertisement. Manhunters. Hey, man, it's got, <laughs> look, this is capitalism, comrade. We do well. You know, we just, you know. That's right. Everything's for sale. Everything, including my cat, who's been, I have been having to go on mute. I've been getting molested by one of my cats for the last two hours. She's been fed. I don't know what the problem is, but I got to go take care of this. I got to go change my shirt, too, because it's got hair all over it. It's been entertaining watching the cat do some tricks there on the, on the screen, so, so I've enjoyed it. Yeah, it was. It was. All right, man. Well, let's let's bring this to a close. Again, guys, Chris uh, Feistel was the uh, agent, DEA agent portrayed in season three of Narcos. So if you guys haven't watched that, go watch season one, too, so that season three makes sense. And then season four comes out. When did you say November? No, season six. I mean, season six. Yeah, because there's two episodes of uh, Narcos Mexico. Right. So season three of Narcos Mexico comes out. And I think it's November 5th. Because well, I'm seeing a bunch of stuff uh, all over the Internet for it, too, now. So you see some of the pictures and stuff, I think, starting to come out. So 
We'll have to watch that, man. So Absolutely. Good. We're getting all these movie stars on, people, or at least people who they made you know, movies and series about. So, All right, Chris, this is us saluting you. Job well done there, Special Agent Chris Feistel. Thank you, brother. DEA retired. Surfer dude. Been an honor and a pleasure having you on here. Appreciate it. Mahalo, bro. Appreciate it. Thanks. Mahalo. Well, I tell you, Netflix fucked up. That's all I can say. Man. <laughs> it should have been two seasons. I mean, when you hear Chris just not only tell the story, but they compress so much. I think, you know, the other problem too, Steve, it's like you talk about with uh, the original, you know, the first two seasons. You weren't there when the Aviaga bombing happened. They made it work, you know, to do that, right? But it was like, but so it, there's a lot of the same events happening, but you kind of get it out of context. I don't think people really appreciate when you watch Netflix is it's done for TV, but you don't really appreciate the brutality, the horror, everything was going on because it, you just can't compress that into one season and say, hey, in 10 hours, we spent three and a half hours with Chris. We spent a yeah. third of the time, you know, talking about the whole story. So, you know, I just, I, man, just, but you know, he still looks good though. He doesn't have the hair down <laughs> the middle of his back, but he looks good. <laughs> you know what? Those boys had some big stones. Cause I tell you what they, you know, narco shows Javier and I running across these rooftops, you, you know, unilaterally enforcing laws that we have no jurisdiction to enforce, which tells you it's bullshit. That's Hollywood. But we were always out with Columbia National Police. We always had them with us, and we lived in a base. And here's Chris and Dave and Jerry living out in these safe houses with really no backup. I mean, going out to meet Salcedo out in the freaking cane fields. I know, but Steve, but the one I thought was funny was the prosecutor wearing high heels that's trying to go down the hillside. Yeah. It's like, what the fuck are you thinking? <laughs> well, the ladies in Columbia, they dress nice. You know, they, yes, they, they, they do. They, they want to look nice. good. <laughs> yes, even in the jungle. <laughs> Well, I was surprised that, uh, you know, and I've heard that story for, before from Chris. I was shocked that not more, you know, officers made it down that hill. What the hell? Wusses? I just like, I mean, man up, people. You're you're going after top tier. You're going after HVT, high value targets. Gotta get, on, get them. Get on your butt and slide down the mud. It'll come out in the wash. Don't worry about it. I Dang. like being a mud bunny. Anyway, but hopefully you guys enjoyed that. If you what'd, joined, you say, what'd you say? A mud butt? Mud, mud bunny. A mud bunny. Oh. They used to turn us into, you know, uh, mud bunnies and uh, dirt bunnies, dust bunnies at, you know, Fort Leonard Wood. When I went through Army Basic, you'd get all sweaty to make sure you, that you cleaned your fatigues. We'd be all sweaty. We'd have to do uh, these drills, uh, you know, ro rolling in the dust. We'd look like <laughs> dust bunnies, mud bunnies, man. They just caked all over us. So anyway. I like if, mud butt better. Mud butt. That's right. Yeah. But if you guys enjoyed it, whether it's a mud butt, a mud bunny, a dirt bunny, or even Chris <laughs> Feistel, head on over to Apple Podcast Reviews. Hit that five stars or whatever platform you're on. Give us a good rating. Please, we just we need somebody to. They like us. They really like us. Pull a Sally Field on you. Just make sure that you know. But it does really help. We really do appreciate it. Head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. More info about the shows. You got to go to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com and pull up Chris's episode to see all the awesome pictures he sent us too. So, follow us on social media. The at Game of Crimes on Twitter and Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Uh, paypal.com game of crimes podcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash game of crimes whatever it makes it easier for you to support the show and the best thing is get us on patreon patreon.com slash game of crimes awesome episodes coming up we are we are doing what no podcast has done before on patreon we are actually giving you the real facts we are diving in as only trained criminal investigators can and murph even though he is he will still screw something up so you got to tune in and find out what he got wrong 
whether it's the year. Murphy's Law. You just live with it. Yeah, but, live with it. But now next week we got a special guest coming up, right? Hey, yeah, we do. Hey, eh? we, <laughs> we, we decided we hadn't picked on Canadians in a while. And let me tell you, I'm going to let you do the intro. But first of all, here, this is a guy who's a trained operator. This guy ran informants, and he knew that we were going to set him up to say a, eh? you know, and apologize. <laughs> we did it on the pre-call, and he said, "No, you're not going to get me to do it again." And I got him. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I'm going to give you credit for that because when he comes to whack you, I don't want to get hit too. <laughs> Steve Matelski, former police officer out of Canada, now a college professor, uh, involved in a major organized crime case. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't know there was organized crime in Canada. I learned a lot from Steve. I thought it may be just be moose stealing, you know, and uh, stealing <laughs> beer, but no, there's some real bad actors up there. Well, he was involved in a lot of beer stuff up there, and you'll hear that story when he tuned in. Uh, I didn't even know, but this one ties into the one of the five families out of New York City. I didn't know all this was the going bananas, on up there. Yeah. So here's an inside look at what actually took place up there. So you got to come back and join us for this. You know, everybody loves organized crime. The best thing you got, one of the best things about this too, is he got to watch the recordings of their mobster turned agent. Yeah. When somebody was becoming a made man in the mafia. You, you, you got to tune in just to hear this yeah. about what they did and what it took. I guarantee you, it's not what you think it is. <laughs> Don't tell them. Don't I tell won't, them, Murph. But that, this is the first time I've ever heard of the police being able to record something like that. It is pretty cool. It is awesome. So if you want to hear how awesome it is, you got to tune in to us. So thank you guys for playing the biggest game of all, the game of crimes. Thank you.